0: Hello, and welcome to the second super edition of the hot new comics podcast that is sweeping this and all other nations. (laughs) Got the runs. David, Uh, welcome to the show. (laughs) Thank you. So good to be back in this, uh, the United Nations favorite podcast. Yeah, we recently, much like BTS, we recently gave a speech at the UN much like bts we recently had our world tour yeah very recently much like bts we recently released a great album everyone go stream that um we're a little we're a little excited today not just because we are covering zot's issues 11 through 27 but because we recently recorded our first ever bonus episode of got the runs (laughs) i'm sure we will one day see the light of day (laughs) It will definitely be released, where we uh, review and break down and live react to the Boss Baby 2 trailer. Boss Baby. The Boss Baby colon back in business. Uh, so look out for that in your feed. We haven't released any of these episodes yet. <laughs> look like... out for all of these episodes in your feed. It's nice to imagine that there will one bit day be a feed and that the Boss Baby 2 trailer reaction, which will at <laughs> that point be months out of date. <laughs> Oh, one day be released? I have bad news for you about the waveform on these laughs. It's uh, it's popping on the record already, I can tell you. Well, I, Let me just turn that the, game down a little bit. As the editor of this podcast, I am used to you creating messes for me to clean up. The J. Jonah, as it were. Or I guess Robbie Robertson is the... Uh, is J. Jonah Jameson the editor or the publisher? He's the editor-in-chief. You're, you're supposed to be the comic I believe Schwab. that he is the editor-in-chief. No, I think he's the publisher and Robbie Robertson is the is the editor in chief. I'm sure it's changed run to run. But uh doesn't well, the publisher like own the newspaper? Yeah. <laughs> he does. Do they he like does sit, own do they the newspaper in an office and work. Uh, <laughs> Jay Jonah yeah, Jameson, Jameson certainly does. <laughs> there's a whole Roger, There's a whole Wait, is it Is it Roger Mur- Who's Roger Murdoch? Rod- <laughs> Rupert Murdoch is who you're thinking I know, of. I'm not I know, sure who's Roger Murdoch. <laughs> oh, <a laughs> tennis you- player? You you vamp for a bit. I'm gonna find out who Roger Murdock is. <laughs> I was going to say uh, before I was commanded to vamp that there is uh, a stretch of time in Spider Man comics uh, in the brand new day, uh, like era, which is right after um, the whole like Spider Man and Mary Jane's marriage gets erased in one more day. Anyways, they did like a whole new status quo thing. <laughs> And one of the new status quo things was that J. Jonah Jameson, like, there was a hostile takeover of the Daily Bugle by this, like, this uh, very uh, Rupert Murdoch-esque figure. Uh, actually, that's not true. He, anyways, he turns it into a real rag and calls it the DB, which uh, mortifies J. Jonah Jameson. Um, so uh, anyways, that, that arc tells me that he is at least the owner. I would imagine the publisher. I think Robbie Robertson is the editor in chief. That, that's, That's my story, and I'm sticking to it as far as what I believe to be true. That definitely all tracks. Um, Yeah, so let's move on to Zot. Roger Murdoch was the character played by Kareem Abdul-Jabbar in Airplane. (laughs) Um, (laughs) 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 Uh, And I should have known that. And that was a great payoff. It is true that I should have known that. Oh boy! All right. Yes, let's do. Let's get into some ZOT talk. This episode's getting good. Um, yes, let's get into some ZOT talk. So, let's catch up. Yes, I'm sure everyone already listened to the last episode. I would hope. I pray. You're not jumping in on. Imagine if your first episode of this podcast was <laughs> Zot, ZOT eleven, 11 to twenty seven. <laughs> I've heard of the Legend 27, but 11 to 27. Oh, <laughs> so, do you remember those ads? No, I was like, as for like, uh, what was before Rage Shadow Legends? Oh, like, <laughs> what was what was the game that was being advertised on real television before uh, Rage Shadow? Whatever that Arnold Schwarzenegger like our tank yeah, commander game. All that's all that's coming into my head is just download for free from the <laughs> App Store. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, So whatever that game is, there was a video or there was a commercial where it was all about how, like, they were getting beaten by the Legend 27. And then at the end, it was like, the Legend 27 is a girl. Oh, (laughs) (laughs) right. I do. Uh, No, that's the same. like. So I'm sure that's also true of that ad, but there was also one for that Arnold Schwarzenegger game where they're like playing at a restaurant. Right. And, and they're like she like, like, girls like drops the a tank on their ass. Yeah. <laughs> and they like turn to her at the she, counter and are like boy. <laughs> she blows them to bits with an airstrike. <laughs> and they're like, uh huh huh. This girl's good at free to play mobile games. I'll, I all I can think of is just that it's called war. <laughs> It's called something of war. Okay. Game of war, something like that. I will have you know that uh, Know Your Meme says that the Google Analytics search interest in uh, The Legend 27 peaked in November 2016. <laughs> that sounds right. Well, maybe that might be a little early. Yeah. Game of war, campfire stories feet The Legend game 27. Of war. Yeah. That sucks. Hey high high point for game of thrones anyways yes that's true oh my gosh zot 11 uh, to 27 we did discuss uh one to ten last time uh and as you may recall it ended with scott mcleod announcing a hiatus for the title um and he's off of it for about a year and a half uh during which time as i mentioned he works uh as like an office furniture mover you know gotta gotta get that bread and he also does a one shot that I wanted to talk about briefly called Destroy, two exclamation marks um, going on strong with his uh, his long-standing tradition of incorporating exclamation marks in the titles of his uh, his stories. Um, but he did. Yeah, he did this one shot. It's called Destroy. He, this is what he says about it. I'll I'll read what he says about it on his uh, on his website. After Zot finished its 10-issue run in late 1985, I took a year and a half break, not entirely voluntarily, since the book was losing money at the time. And apart from moving office furniture, I also decided to do a giant-sized one-shot filled with nothing but pure senseless violence from beginning to end. I got the idea when I first heard people complaining about a Marvel comic called Super Boxers and claiming that it was, <laughs> quote, nothing but senseless violence from beginning to end. <clears throat> I thought this sounded cool, but was disappointed upon acquiring a copy to discover that super boxers included a plot characterization and other distractions. It wasn't pure destroy exclamation mark exclamation mark! was my attempt to get it right. Um, so eclipse published this one shot, the cover says eclipse comics presents destroy huge letters. There is like a superhero type guy with both fists up screaming directly into the camera <laughs> with the following text boxes. The loudest comic book in the universe. Fabulous first issue. Bye, bye, bye. (laughs) (laughs) Parents, beware. This comic book is exactly what you think it is. 32 pages of meaningless, overblown violence, mayhem, and destruction, plus one naughty word. (laughs) And there is a two-page sample of the comic uh, underneath, which uh, depicts exactly as it says... Uh, two guys fighting each other, one of whom shouts, only destroy with two exclamation marks, <laughs> no other dialogue, and the other one keeps yelling back, shut up, and... Uh... <laughs> finding a copy of destroy not easy but my sense of it is that that is <laughs> pretty much that's what it, yeah. it is for 32 pages that's that good. that was his uh so that was his one published work between zot 10 and zot 11 so yeah that that's <laughs> i feel like that uh sets sets the stage in in some way because it's so the opposite of what we get from uh, zot in these issues yeah i so The basically, the first ten issues are basically one long story, more or less. You know, there there's a little bit of episodic stuff here and there, but more or less it's a continuous story about one thing with the key and the war between Earth and Sirius Four. For the most part, it, it gets. I think the comic gets a little bit back into being about Zot's world and about the sort of politics and intrigue of Zot's Earth more towards the end. Yeah, like the, the Nine Jack 9 story is definitely it's it's like the longest story in this chunk of issues at three issues. I guess the Zybox story is also three issues. But but those are the two longest stories and it is the one that is most uh I would say concerned with Zot's world. I think the the blotch story also is, but it's a lot more lighthearted. Yeah, that's, that's the thing is, at, at this point, mainly, and the, the book sort of follows this, but it seems like Zot's Earth is more like a vehicle for comedy at this point. Yeah. At least, like... Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I would say so. This is, Well, so it's kind of, like, I. it's a lot more episodic at this point as compared to, like you said, the ten issues. The first ten issues are one long story. These ones yeah episodic i think is the right word for them nothing no one story is any longer than three issues and some of them are just one shots um mostly one to two issues so yeah i i wonder if it's worth like maybe we should just go through kind of story by story and uh and talk about yeah. them one at a that's, time that's what i was kind of thinking um and then bef- you know we can sort of start with our more broad thoughts. Um, sorry, I'm just, I'm pulling up the character poll because that's what really interested <laughs> me. <laughs> um, because so the first character poll we get in issue number 11, uh, Jenny has risen to number one. Yeah, I think she was like number four or something before. Like she was way down there. And then she very quickly ascends to number one and stays there until eventually she and Zot are retired from the character poll. Yes, they go into the Hall of Fame, right? Yes, the Hall of Fame. So it become it, be, it then becomes pick your favorite supporting character. I'm sure it's so pretty I'll, like Nine Jack Nine and Deco are the are the two who really dominate that, right? That's correct. So I'll give you a quick rundown of uh, of where people stand in issue 25, which is the last time in the comics that we've covered that we get the character poll. So number one, Nine Jack Nine. Who has suppl- now supplanted Deco as the favored villain of choice, which makes sense because he sort of becomes like almost the main antagonist. Yeah, kind of. You know, it's it, it's it's sort of weird because there issue number ten is so much more of a clear you know delineation point uh, for the comic than I assume issue twenty seven is like I I haven't read any further than that so I don't really know what comes after and and it is sort of you know the end of an arc and the beginning of something else. But the, over this collection of 17 issues, he sort of has a presence most of the time. Um, so, Nine Jack Nine, number one. Deco, number two. Butch, number three. Wow, big showing for Butch. Yeah, I guess people really like... He's, he's, he's the... What common, are your thoughts on Butch? <laughs> so... I mean, he's not really a character so much as he is like an engine. <laughs> yeah, he's like he's like an engine for comedy, and like it feels like anytime that McCloud is like, I want to lighten the mood a bit. That that is the cue for like a butch issue or like a butch chunk of like three pages or a butch couple panels. He's definitely the comedic relief. Um, I he 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 gets a little bit more fleshed out here. Like I think we'll talk about it shortly but even in in issue 11 like when jenny gets home and he's kind of like yeah there's some issues in here where we see that the things that are affecting jenny are affecting him as well but being the older brother slightly more um mature is probably the wrong word but more more experienced more more worldly um and protective. Yeah, he's he's able to process it in such a way that he doesn't pine for Zot's world in the same way that Jenny does. But by and large, I think his function is uh, is comedic relief. Right. And and we don't get like we do get those little snippets, but he never he never comes into focus for a serious issue the way like Druffus did, who similarly was like a comic relief character but who then got got spotlighted in a way that made you take him a lot more seriously. Yes, we'll talk a little bit about Drufus later. I want to talk about the ongoing, uh, the letters page and the things that get talked about there. Mm-hmm. But number four is Max, which is kind of surprising to me because he he kind of gets sidelined more. Like, in the first 10 issues, he's like the third lead. <laughs> and in this, well, just in this run, he is much more you know, he is ancillary in the same way that like Peabody. I, know, would that, be. I was gonna I was gonna say not even Peabody, because Peabody's in like every issue. <laughs> <laughs> he yeah, he I think he becomes a little bit more of a plot driver as opposed to a character, but he even yes. he he does he gets his due in the Zybox arc when he's playing in his quartet. <laughs> yes. Uh, well he yeah, he still has the moments where he stands in as kind of the worldly uh like guide like that that scene where in the deco story where he is painting with jenny and they're kind of reflecting on zot like oh that's a great part um you know he still he still has his moments but yeah it, i like i said the the cast really like contracts for this chunk of issues in a way not not in that the characters stop appearing but it really does uh tighten the focus quite a bit on our on jenny and zot right the characters get used in different ways yeah. certainly uh number five having risen dramatically you're going to be mad about this floyd oh floyd isn't even in these issues <laughs> no yes he is he, oh, he's right. in the He helps, issues he helps <laughs> he's yeah oh floyd <laughs> floyd literally saves the day floyd does in save the zybox the day arc, in the zybox arc. uh I know you hate Floyd for unclear I reasons. I don't hate Floyd. I just don't feel that he deserves more recognition than Peabody, who uh, shines every time he is the spotlight is thrown on him. The part when Peabody plays back a voice <laughs> clip of Zot in order to avoid yes. like having to say it himself is very funny. Um, number six, Drufus. My boy. Strong showing for him for a character who has not appeared in 20 issues. Number seven is a tie between Vic and Bellows. Number eight is Peabody. Hmm. Number nine is Hot Woody. Hold on, another person we will be talking about. (laughs) Peabody is behind Doctor Bellows. Peabody is well behind Doctor Bellows. Peabody has fifty-one points, and Doctor Bellows and Vic have sixty-three. I'm rubbing my temples at this revelation. It does also. It does also seem like, according to the letters, that there were a lot of people who started reading at like number eleven, and so might have more of an attachment to. The, those characters over peabody who you know is pretty established at that point and just kind of like is around yeah i i guess so anyways carry on hot woody uh, number nine is hot woody the secret star glowed, these up, issues. Uh, glowed up woody <laughs> we'll talk about <laughs> hot woody i hope i hope a lot and then number 10 is a tie between the dreeps and the Devolutionaries. evolutionaries you have you know is unconscionable That the (laughs) de-evolutionaries would tie with the the dreeps, who have appeared in a sum total of two issues and maybe five total panels. I was going to say, like a total combined panel count is very low. And then, you know, you have Zybox, Sarah, Terry, Mrs. Weaver, The Blotch, Janet. I want to talk about Janet. Zybox coming in under... Under the dreeps, yeah. Uh, anyways, <laughs> Scott <laughs> McCloud. Readers of is nineteen. Also, uh, whenever I, I shake my fist eighty-five, interview. yeah. Scott McCloud is also there. He's in fifteenth, tied with five points. I assume someone gave him the number one spot, um, mm-hmm. and it, it's not in this issue mm-hmm. because he's a tie. But in another issue, when he is on the poll, he is illustrated as Sluggo from Nancy. <laughs> <laughs> that is. Amusing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, which I liked a lot. Speaking speaking of reader polls, did um did yours are the issues that you read in number twenty like six or twenty seven, did they have the results of the pie in the face contest? Yes. Okay. Yes they did. Those are hysterical. I can pull that up as well if you want. Um so yes, this is a how long had this been going? I it felt I like a very long he time. He says. So I've got the uh, Harper Collins complete black and white collection of these issues, uh, which at the end of each storyline, um, Scott McCloud does like a page or two of commentary on what you've just read, um, and he says in that that the pie in the face contest had been running for over three years. <laughs> yeah, I knew. Like, because it starts in, like, issue five. It starts very early on as, like, just a running joke um, for people to write in and say which character they want to be hit in the face with a pie. Mm-hmm. Um And so in issue 27, we finally get the payoff, which is that uh the pie flies through Nine Jack Nine, who is immaterial, <laughs> and then eventually gets hit hits Zot in the face who was the second place vote getter yes <laughs> so so the so the votes are nine jack nine in first Zot in second which did surprise me but also kind of makes sense yeah uh, butch in third jenny in fourth peabody bellows well, now they Max, vote for peabody Deco <laughs> terry got four votes yeah uh tying with scott mcleod everybody <laughs> and steve gerber <laughs> I did not understand that. I, uh, so even Scott McCloud is completely befuddled <laughs> by the appearance of Steve Gerber, best known as the creator uh, of Howard the Duck. Uh, Uh, yeah he 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 describes this as an odd joke and says i have no idea why after all these even after all these years why comics writer steve gerber creator of howard the duck received four votes (laughs) (laughs) uh my personal favorite uh of the joke entries of course goes to the pie (laughs) (laughs) yes the The pie hitting the pie getting pied (laughs) yes that's very good priceless Yes, everyone did a great job there, but yeah, do, do, do people just not like Terry? I like Terry. I like Terry. Why did, yeah, I don't I don't know. I mean, I don't like i I was kind of trying to figure out why that would be the case. And the only thing I could come up with was that she was is sort of perceived as like the stick in the mud who like hates zot's world. it It surprises me that she got votes, and Woody didn't because i I would say they have like equal screen time if not more so for woody um who it's because I, everyone likes Woody I guess so I but I I didn't I, I, yeah I don't interpret it as like people are voting for the characters they don't want to see like or they that they don't like to get Pied in the face I think that most people are just voting based on like who they think it would be funniest to see get Pied in the face but it's so strange that that would be Terry yeah because I, like you don't like that's like what what's the joke of Terry getting in the face of the Posh, you should be like oh come on hey one thing I, I also noticed was that uh single vote getter was, I believe in the original issues, he's listed as kid in the Wolverine t-shirt. I, yes. In my book is listed as Sparky and he is not wearing a Wolverine t-shirt. I don't think that's the same character because there was, I did, I saw some other mention of kid in the, maybe in the the character poll, there was some mention of kid in the Wolverine shirt. <laughs> being like tied with one point or something like that. Mm-hmm. Uh let me see if I can find it. Yeah, Kid in the Wolverine shirt is a tie in 18th place with one point along with Zarbin Borlock. <laughs> so I I don't know I didn't know whose Sparky was. A lot of this confused me. I think I think they're the same character. I my suspicion is that they had a rights issue with having Wolverine depicted <laughs> for the Hypercollins yeah. collection and he had to change it. Yeah, so that's our brief character poll and pie in the face aside. <laughs> brief, brief 20 minute, uh, <laughs> yeah, pie in quick the face, uh, character poll segment. Uh, we're having fun today. Mm-hmm. The other thing that is new in these issues, well, there's a few things that are new. Um, the comic is written, and it's drawn in black and white. Yes. It's, it's, funny he says in the harper collins collection that if they were like if saw it was coming out now he would just do a new number one he's like this is basically a reboot um and like obviously there's like references to things that happen in the first 10 issues but from his perspective he's like obviously not blank slating it but like he kind of like he he definitely views it as like a soft reset yeah it definitely is a soft reset i don't know if i would call it like You know, well, I mean, I'm not really going to get into comic marketing tactics, but it doesn't feel like a new number one to me. It does very much feel like a continuation of what came before. You know, it's obviously the thing is, like, it's different. It's in black and white, obviously, and it sort of goes in some different story directions than the original comics, but... I don't know that it feels, you know, it still does feel of a piece with the other comics to me. Yeah, tonally uh, and like stylistically for sure. I I think he's right, though. I think if this was a corporate comic uh, coming out now, it probably would be a new number one. And I think that number 28 would be as well. Because like even, even if you look at a modern run like Jason Aaron on Thor, I think his run has like five number ones, something like that. It's it's just the way they do things now, and I I think he's right that there's enough of a shift in kind of the setting and the tone that um and, and especially after a hiatus, yeah, I think he's totally right that now an editor would be like, and uh, all right, so Zot Volume Two Number One, like let's go. Yeah, that's that's very strange to me, but I do understand it kind of. Number one's a sell, baby. Yeah, I guess so. But the the thing that I really wanted to talk about here is. The new backup feature. Goodbye to the magic shop. R.I.P. Uh, is Zot in Dimension Ten and a Half by Matt Fiesel. So you're probably going to have to take uh, take the ten and a half corner because I've never read these. <laughs> They're not in the HarperCollins <laughs> collection. Oh, um, I yeah, I've I've never read them. I have like looked them up to have a peek. It's like all stick figures, right? Yeah. So Matt Feesel his character cynical man uh who you know is sort of his trademark character and there's also anti-social man who is the first one to appear and uh so he's also referenced i think or is part of understanding comics um i don't know any more than that other than that i saw that somewhere that, but- that makes sense to me based on like the little snippets of his art that i've seen Right, so basically, Zot in Dimension Ten and a Half is basically just like a parody of Zot that shows up uh, starting in issue eleven. I guess there was an issue ten and there a half was an issue 10 Yeah. That... So what do you what do you know so that, about that? That's this? like a mini comic. Um, that when when he was like it's ending, Matt Fiesel was just like a friend of his who was like, like they were they were basically like, let's put out a mini comic. It's not going to be like. In continuity per se, um, but it would be like I want you to have fun with it, and so I think they collaborated for the for ten and a half, and I know he did fourteen and a half later as well. Yeah, I did not manage to see or find either of those actually. Yeah, but- I, I've never read them either. But I think it's basically just like a full length comic of what he's doing at the as like the backup stories. Right. Yeah. So it starts as a one page thing. When I first saw it, I was like oh, this is something a fan sent into him that he's just, <laughs> like, putting in the back because he thinks it's funny. Where, basically, it's a parody of Zot. The earlier ones feature some of Matt Fiesel's own characters um, who are, you know, it's, like, I feel like it's a very, like, 80s Gen X type of humor where there's a character named Antisocial Man who is, like, antisocial, and he wants everyone to be antisocial. right. Um, kind of in the vein of like too much coffee man, uh which is like <laughs> an indie comic running around this time, or like maximum minimum wage is another <laughs> that those <laughs> all sound like the titles. Both of very evocative this type of comic. to me. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, there's a there's a storyline where he shoots Zot with the antisocial gun, and then Zot wants to like hang out with goths or whatever. <laughs> um and then so so I was reading all of those as, like, the one-page ones in the earlier issues, and then whenever it goes, it switches over to monthly. Quote which I Heaviest think, possible air quotes around monthly, by the way. Well, yes. <laughs> it. He immediately has trouble with that as well, but he was getting married, so I'll cut him some slack. So once it switches to monthly, which I think is in the early 20s, Zot itself switches to 18 pages, and then you get a six-page... Zot in Dimension Ten and a Half story every issue, and that is when I stopped reading them. <laughs> like they're fine, yeah. they're they're reasonably funny. Like you know, it's it's that it's a certain type of humor that you know is maybe not my favorite type, but I can definitely you know I I got a chuckle or two out of them certainly. Right. But once it expanded to like six a pages third, of, yeah, a third of a Zot comic every issue, I was like, <laughs> I don't think I need to keep on with this much longer yeah i uh, i also don't really like the idea of parodying a comic that is already kind of a parody it, to me is like like <laughs> i don't know yeah it's just like so it's just like sort of like a send-up of the things that happen in zot right the comedy central roast of zot it basically is the comedy central roast of zot so uh, i wanted to bring back my original segment which is (laughs) what's going on here is that (laughs) the title of that that that, that's yeah that's actually a good idea i i have your first cover first thoughts but what's going on here is or what's the deal with this something like that (laughs) (laughs) yeah what's the deal with this (laughs) (laughs) that famous thing that no one's ever said Uh (laughs) uh and it that makes sense. What's going on here does make sense as a title because the first thing I have written here is what's going on with Jenny though. Mm. She looks uh, she looks sad, but like <laughs> what's going on with Jenny in like a in like a <laughs> like an, an her aesthetic face, sense? Yeah, her face looks drastically we, different. We yeah, which and it's funny because as soon as you open the actual comic, she looks the same. Like. <laughs> Yeah, she she looks the same to me. You think she looks much. the same as she did in issue 10? I mean, maybe not the exact same, um but but like yeah, I, I don't see like a huge difference. She let looks me, very let me strange pull up to me. Some, and uh, color color art to compare with here. Yeah, I think you might be surprised. The the big thing is her eyes, which people talk about uh in the letters. They talk about it being like a manga influence, which definitely makes sense to me. Yeah. Um, like her eyes are sort of very sort of dewy and expressive. Can you type a little louder? <laughs> yeah. Well, sorry. That's my, uh, high, uh, <laughs> <The> clickety clack <laughs> man the is the back. Clickety clack man. Clickety clack guy has arrived. Um, okay. Let me pull up. I'll pull up issue 10 here and have a look. See, <laughs> this is a good segment. Um, but yes, I'll, I'll keep talking about my things. Um, definitely they look older. I think we find out, after the fact that they're they've only aged like 14 and then I think yeah we we have zot's 15th birthday at the at the in the commentary in my version after the end of number 12 he says that Jenny is 14 in this story and zot is 15. He, that yeah that doesn't quite track because we do see zot's birthday um his 16th birthday perhaps and Jenny maybe. is Jenny is 15 by the time we get to the end of this whack of issues as well. Yes, she's definitely fourteen when we start because she's in the ninth grade. Yeah, and yes, yeah, so so we we go into uh, we can talk about the planet Earth storyline now. Uh, we sort of it definitely focuses more on Jenny as the POV character, obviously at the beginning because there is no Zot for a little while. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Jenny on Earth. We see her sort of situation that we 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 heard something about it in number one. Where we definitely get the sense that she is unhappy with her situation. Yeah, it's, it's her, more focused on kind of the constant moving around in that right. one. Whereas I think what he really hits early on is like the fact that neither of her parents are ever home. And as we go on, uh, there's obviously the heavy implications that their marriage could like completely falling apart. But yeah, it's, it seems he seems to have moved on just from the idea that they're moving around and zeroed in on like, the the domestic uh (laughs) ennui that she's feeling or the angst that she has about her relationship with her parents yes and when we do finally see one of her parents um her mom like her mom looks tired yeah and i don't think her dad ever appears on page not that i've seen certainly but yes so we're back we're on earth jenny has basically come back from this whole experience and is she she already she talks about feeling alienated in the first issue, but I think that has obviously you know only become more powerful since leaving what I refer to as Zot World. Mm-hmm. Um, she, <laughs> the she, you know, has future like future of nineteen sixty-five. Right. She has you know post not traumatic, but post Zotmatic <laughs> sad disorder. Pzst. Yeah. <laughs> but yes, and so the what it, what it eventually turns into is sort of what I thought. We talked about this at the end of last episode when I was talking about sort of what I was expecting this to be, this Planet Earth Mm storyline, where it's about Zot's optimistic worldview, which is also informed by his optimistic world, which is definitely something that becomes more of a thing in these issues, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. Um, But yes, his worldview sort of bumping up against the more harsh reality of the world that jenny inhabits yes he he has a run-in with some uh <laughs> what to say about <laughs> about these muggers the kid the so the kid who instigates the incident is wearing like a japanese flag headband or like uh i, I I don't even know how to, how to describe it. The, the word that comes to mind for me is I want to call it for some reason a bonsai headband. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, but that it's, would be it's problematic. It, well, I don't know how else to describe. It feels to me very evocative of like the kind of like i don't know like samurai it's like movie we've seen e honda wearing this yeah exactly <laughs> it's, it's a white headband with what i assume was intended to be just like a red dot in the middle of it yeah they're 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 quite a crew these uh these muggers yes as as a letter writer points out any feature issue uh Scott McCloud struggles with ethnic characters. <laughs> it's not, it's not his finest showing. I think he says also that some other, uh, like industry guy, like absolutely tore him a new one in some like essay or or a magazine article about them, but not not because of a, a racial thing, but because he was like. Uh, put off that that Scott McCloud was perpetuating the stereotype that in order to get like robbed in New York City all you had to do was like walk down any given alley. <laughs> it was a different time. It was the 80s. Uh-huh. Um, and a, a mugger of any ethnicity, although these ones do happen to be black, <laughs> could could cost <laughs> oh. you. <laughs> oh. Um but yeah, so yeah, the big things are that sort of experience he has with muggers, especially I I found it a very Uh, potent sort of image where he is getting beaten down by these muggers and then looks up and just sees everyone on the street just sort of watching it happen. Yeah. And when he thinks back on that image, like he repeats that image later when Zat is like trying to convince himself that Jenny's world is like, Oh, it's a little rough around the edges, but you know, there's lots of potential here that she's, she's not, she's blinded herself to, but then he kind of thinks back on, on what he's seen with that like crowd of bystanders and is, is obviously very troubled by it. I think, yeah, this, this for like for a a new, a new number one type issue uh, where, where we're kind of like introducing some new ideas, some new circumstances, like putting Zot to be like the fish out of water instead of Jenny. I think this issue is really effective in that sequence in particular. Is, is one that really, like, stays with you. Yeah, that that one, and then the other big sort of sequence is at the end of issue 12, I guess, um, which is the house fire in yeah. Terry's neighborhood, Yeah, where Zot, he... There are people inside, and Zot manages to save one of them, and then is sort of trying to figure out a way to save the other one, and is in disbelief that there it that there is even a possibility that this isn't going to work because we we also see earlier on Zot's world it's this is sort of what I was talking about in the terms of the the drama and the conflict, especially in this couple of issues on Zot's world, it becomes very much toned down. It becomes lighter in tone, mm-hmm. you know, like it like it was sometimes in the earlier issues, but you know, there were also times where it was clearly very serious, even if Zot wasn't serious about it. Um, but then you have, you know, Zot's friends, one of whose is named Dick Digger. Um, <laughs> and Josh like, Hacker. Yes. They're sitting on lawn chairs. Like, they're, Max is filming Zot with a movie camera. Mm-hmm. Like, it's clear that none of them take it seriously either. And the reason that it, they talk about in that scene uh, is that Zot, if Zot believes that he can do something, then he just always does it. Yeah. Yeah. As- I think Vic, Vic has dialogue to Jenny where he says, Zot can be a bit cocky sometimes. I guess that's cause things come so easy to him, but he really is a hero. And if a time ever came when he had to give his own life to save someone else, I'll bet he wouldn't have to think twice. Not that it's ever come up before. Yeah. So there's like the reassurance that like obviously you can, you can trust that Zot is kind of like this idealized hero, but on his idealized world, like this, that, the, the scene that plays out under that dialogue is like kind of the only moment of genuine tension that we see in Zot's world for a little while, where he's like racing to catch a bomb that Dr. Bellows has just dropped on like a huge crowd. And then he puts it at like, he just licks his finger and puts out the fuse and gets like massive applause. Yes. The, the, the thing I noticed was that the humor it's more baked into the story itself rather than like sort of having like humorous asides or someone says something funny like the part where it's like Dr. Bellows and Zot are facing off, and then there's that beat, and then Zot just shoots his control panel. Yeah, yeah. And <laughs> he say, like, is that a weapons control panel? <laughs> it's like, uh, he's like yes. E? <laughs> yes. So like stuff like that. And I think that you know, that's funny, but I think that's also intending to make a point that Zot's world, like Zot's version of heroism on his own world is a ver- is one where he doesn't have to really worry about people getting hurt because he always, you know, works it out, which is sort of in line with what we've seen. But also, you know, like the previous issues did have serious things. It had Drufus and stuff like that where people did get hurt. And so it's a it's a bit of a departure from the way we've seen Zot's world get portrayed before. And, it, and I think that's mainly in these issues. And that sort of evolves as we go further on in this sort of chunk of the series. Mm-hmm. But that is what we see here. And then... Yes, and so then that culminates in him being unable to save this person and sort of having a crisis of faith about that mm-hmm. and questioning his place in Jenny's world. Mm-hmm. And and her questioning his place. Yes, and then they do a little kiss. They do do a beautiful little kiss, uh, and there's a very sweet story that McLeod writes about how when he turned in the art for that issue to eclipse, they... they you know, I think, I think in the letters pages of the single issues, he's like hawking the art from, uh, from the series yes. kind of throughout. So there's you, a lot of original art. Send me $46. Yeah, which, by the steal. way, Scott McLeod, if you are still selling any original Zot pages for $46, hit me right. up. <laughs> um, but anyway, so he writes about turning in the, the pages for that issue. Um, and, and gets like a phone call from his editor that's like, a bunch of like Eclipse staffers want to buy the last like three pages um, or the last page. And he, uh, he turned them down because he wanted to give it to his, uh, his wife to be, and apparently they still have it. Um, And he, he talks about the inspiration that she played and, uh, or, or he, he very much sees kind of like his emotional state at the time in the like throes of young love with her in, in Mm -hmm. those pages. And so he like gave it to her as a gift and they still have it. It's very sweet. That's nice. He also yes, he also talks about his so his still wife mm-hmm. Ivy. Yes, um, that's that's good to hear. Uh, but yes, th- he talks about how she played. It's it starts towards the end of what we read. Uh, but he talks about how she had this instrumental role in sort of setting up the plot, and that continues into I assume the issues that we're going to see. In the future, mm-hmm. yeah, she starts getting credited. As Kurt Music is gone, R.I.P. as a script consultant, <laughs> but I believe that um, she starts getting credit as like a plot plot consultant. Or, yeah, he 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 mentions that in a letters page that he needs to start giving her co plotting credit because she helped so much with those upcoming issues. Right. Uh, yeah. The other thing I wanted to talk about with respect to the letters page is we sort of see mixed reactions to the new, a lot of stuff in the new comic, both the black and white people talk about a lot. And then also just the stories themselves. He says at one point, I find that <laughs> I find these letters pages very interesting mm-hmm. because you know, it does seem to be a very impassioned fan base and very thoughtful people, which makes sense because you know, it's a small comic. It's a very thoughtful comic. And so I think that the kind of people it tends to attract are, pretty thoughtful and like to write (laughs) there was no internet at the time Mm -hmm. so they wrote letters yeah tm tm maple is in a bunch of the letters pages right so he's like the the letter hack to end all letter hacks who if you if you read a comic that was published between like 1976 and like 1994 there's like a pretty good odds on chance that there's a tm maple uh letter in it tm of course short for the mad (laughs) uh (laughs) so he's this guy his real name was jim burke which i believe he announced that he like unveils his true identity (laughs) in a zot letter just like masks in a zot yes he he's like uh like ourselves like a down-home ontario boy uh who is like one of the most infamous letter hacks infamous is the wrong word he's well loved um but an extremely prolific uh letter writer who went by the mad maple and then at marvel jim shooter instituted a policy that they if you were sent in a letter and wanted it printed you had to give your name so he started (laughs) signing his letters tm maple (laughs) they were like good enough for me i'm gonna shooter this onto the letters page i like making puns based on my own last name (laughs) that's a quote Jim was always saying that uh, yes, well, uh, but b- yes. Before we, I think we're almost done with. Or sorry, you had something about the letters page still, right? Yes, yeah, so I, I wanted to talk about sort of the the mixed reactions. He does mention a little later on that he tends to print. He says he prints ninety percent of the negative letters he receives because he feels like he's censoring people if he doesn't print negative stuff. Right. Um, but we do see a fair amount of mixed reactions are you know we he- we hear from different people who have mixed reactions to the new stuff both because they don't like the black and white which i would echo and we can talk about that in a Ooh, bit interesting um and then also the storylines uh, i wish i had pulled out you know the things people talk about but certainly people people sort of say you know it's getting a little too heavy handed it's too overly serious compared to the more you know lighthearted tone of the other ones Um, there were a couple of quotes that I wrote down that I thought would, that I thought summed up what Zot is more than, um, you know, sort of the idea people say of like, it's a response to dark, gritty comics or like it's got, it's, you know, lighthearted and stuff like that. Um, so one person described it as dramatic, hopeful, delightful without being maudlin or ponderous, which I thought was a good way to describe the tone. Mm And then there, there's another one where someone ref- says basically it's they say it's not casually brutal is the terminology they use, which I think is a good way to put it yeah. compared to you know what what you see in the average superhero comic, especially I assume at the time, yeah, 1987. That, like Watchmen is probably coming out at the time, uh, and like Dark Knight, uh, Dark Knight Returns would be coming out around that time as well. Yeah, just that if if someone gets hurt in a Zot comic that it matters, basically. Mm-hmm. Well, and that he doesn't, like, relish the the violence of it. I was reflecting on it kind of throughout, actually, that the, the means of conflict resolution throughout this run particularly is, like, he really leans into anti-climax as kind of, like, the <laughs> the resolution where, like, I think the most violent violent thing that happens to a villain is – uh, probably either like when 9jack9 Nine Nine accidentally kills his own operator or when Zybox gets struck by lightning, which in both cases are like either completely unrelated to Zot or he's like almost incidental to it. And the other mm-hmm. stuff is like Deco shuts himself down. Like in this one, Bellos, like the, the, the moment we just talked about where he puts out the bomb by like licking his fingers and <laughs> snuffing the fuse is like a perfect right. example of like. He's clearly much more interested in kind of like the, the psyche of the characters and the villains and, and what he sees as like representing the villains as opposed to actually showing Zot like fight them. Uh, where, yeah, like I said, Deco shuts himself down. Like he tricks the Blotch back into a jail cell. Yes, the Blotch walks into (laughs) jail. (laughs) Um, I think, I think it shows the extent to which he kind of like destroy was, was how he views the like idea of superheroes fighting each other or, or a superhero fighting a supervillain when he has the like the moment come when theoretically the hero now has to defeat the villain he's just kind of like uh yeah and then you know the <laughs> then the fight's over like or the fight gets skipped altogether because of happenstance or because you know the hero took steps to avoid it the thing that stood out to me over the ones that we read for this episode were that sort of the the superhero action stuff becomes more incidental, which I think is what allows him to make it more lighthearted and more comedic is that, you know, like the super, the, the fighting for the most part is no longer a sort of direct means to defeat the villain. Mm -hmm. And so, or at least, you know, it, it already wasn't entirely that before, but the fact that he, he sort of makes the combat elements progressively less important to the conclusions of the story yeah and so that sort of allows him to not take them too seriously and allows the action stuff to be a little more lighthearted. Um, and then we we sort of start to see this trend that he gets into at least you know in the in the sort of teens areas is that he will have issues that are very you know emotional and character focused and then he'll sort of you know so issue 16 is a good example where it's all about them getting turned it's into monkeys evolutionary issue yes <laughs> yes it's, it's 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 sort of a reset it's definitely very comedy focused like that's probably the most overtly comedic the comic has been for over a complete issue yeah the <laughs> there's a gun where you type in the, you type <laughs> in what you want to stun on a keyboard, <laughs> which was an amazing bit. Yes, but you know we'll, we'll we can talk more about that yes. later if we want. I don't think there's too much to talk about with that issue. No, but, there there's but yes, not. and then and then getting to ninety nine as well, which is after Eyes of Deco. It's it's a more it's very straightforward. Like the stakes and the plotting of it are extremely clear. Yeah, and that it can it can allow itself to focus more on the action and not, you know, have to dig in too much to the emotional elements. Yeah, that's definitely the most action oriented of, of anything in this chunk of issues. Um, i think we are wrapping up on uh the the planet earth storyline i think the only thing that we really need to talk about still with those particular issues is the introduction of terry and woody both of whom we have alluded to yes so obviously they they come in and they they kind of supersede characters like vic and max as sort of the the important secondary characters uh I, i get the sense that you are a big big woody fan uh in this in pixar in many things uh and obviously you've also defended terry against being pied what are your impressions of those two characters well in the so for the for the can't buy me love story arc which is you know the blotch and making the commercial and all that uh which is the introduction of hot woody (laughs) the first three bullet points i have in my notes are hot woody though uh, hot Woody making moves. Va-va-voom. <laughs> <Bah, bah>, <laughs> and then the blotch though. <laughs> um, but yeah, so yes, when, when when we first see Woody, he is, you know, he is an interesting character, but not a very developed character. Yeah. Woody, Woody has first presented to me when I first read these issues. It was after I had read uh, Understanding Comics. I was like 100% dead convinced that Woody was supposed to be like a joke scott mcleod was making about himself that he was like supposed to be sort of the self-insert character because look up look up the like little avatar he uses to represent himself in understanding comics and tell me that that isn't just woody's character design <laughs> i i sort of know what you mean because i I remember from seeing on his website he has his little bit of like a comic self-portrait yeah. thing but yes the, the dark hair the glasses yeah uh yeah i can definitely see where that is and i think That was true of a lot of the readers, and you know, it could be true of him. Um, but I think that was true of a lot of the readers because so many people talk about Woody and how they like see themselves in Woody as like the nerd who wasn't, you know, like isn't really torn down by the pretty girl. Not that Jenny is, you know, a popular girl or anything, Mm -hmm. but they're not exactly being torn down, but they're sort of like they're not being embraced or welcomed either. No, certainly not. And they sort of get themselves into these situations where there's a girl that's nice to them, and so they sort of, like, latch on to that, and that becomes, like, a bit of a... Mm. not an obsession, but an infatuation. Woody. Proto-incel? (laughs) <laughs> no, Woody's <laughs> not Woody got hot. Yeah, well, Woody, Woody had sex in Europe. Woody eventually got hot. It's undeniably true. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting. So like I said, I was like dead convinced that Scott McCloud probably saw Woody as the character who most reflects him, and but he never really talked. He says the characters that he most identifies with are Max, Zot, and Deco. And and like never really comments on Woody at all, which I thought was funny because it, it seemed to me like if Scott McCloud was portraying himself in high school we would get a character not at all unlike Woody yes definitely we see we see him playing like a superhero RPG yes (laughs) which is wild (laughs) it's like Mr. Fantastic Wolverine Wonder Woman and Matter Eater Lad (laughs) Uh, dunking on Matter Eater Lad before it was popular Uh, so it's true a great pull for uh, Mr. McCloud at that point um, but yeah, Woody, Woody, obviously I think is a, a point of entry character for a lot of, uh, like young men reading, reading the comic who probably have a much easier time identifying with Woody than they do with Zot. Um, so I think, I think he's kind of, uh, destined to succeed based on that alone. And of course, when hot Woody comes back, I let's, let's get into, let's get into hot Woody a little bit. We're skipping so ahead hot. a little bit. Yeah. Uh, first of all, uh, like I said, Auga um <laughs> second of all what do you think of woody as a as a match for jenny as opposed to zot
1: because yes, so he's that's...
0: presented throughout for first as like a total non non-factor in her romantic life and then as a genuine zot competitor when he gets hot uh because jenny uh jenny looks at the outer appearance uh, sadly before seeing the heart but he's he's always p- positioned as like a romantic potential romantic partner for Jenny whether as a more of a comedy point or as a more genuine like they could actually match up right yeah so i'm i'm trying to find the page where it's sort of it's basically they have an entire conversation yeah it's just the art is just the two of them sitting under a tree and most of the rest of the page is just like a huge text box yes exactly um and i think that i obviously you know that that seems like he just had a whole conversation he wanted to write that he couldn't fit into the pages of a comic. Yeah. But yes, Hot Woody has comes back into Jenny's life after spending what 6 months overseas, Yeah, a semester <laughs> in abroad France. in uh, in Gay Perry. Uh yes, and he has become hot. Um the thing I I do I like Woody as a pairing for Jenny. I think the it's an interesting idea definitely. Um, It certainly feels more sort of fleshed out or complex than we see in comics at this point, where Woody is, I guess, I guess if Zot is sort of the representative of one side of, or so sort of one viewpoint, then Woody is sort of, he's not the opposite viewpoint, but he, mm, I'm trying to figure out what I'm trying to say here. (laughs) Woody is sort of representative of, you know, he's, well, he's, he's a representative of the good things about the real world. Yeah. And I think, uh, he, he not only represents the good things about the real world or Jenny's world, or however you want to phrase it, but he shows, he, he shows kind of where the uh, gap between Jenny and Zot, uh, is and the the degree to which that's a weakness. Like he clearly understands Jenny, and jenny's experience in a way that zot is like pretty much completely unable to um he's able to connect with her uh like on an emotional level in part because he seems to experience a range of emotions whereas zot is either at like 100 uh and like in total optimism mode or it, like we only really ever see him as at his extremes so he's either like riding cloud nine or he's just suffered some like catastrophic failure and is like completely destroyed. Um, whereas obviously Woody has had a more, a more normal and a more mundane existence on our earth. Um, and he understands just like being sad in a way that is not necessarily a world ending, but is, is pervasive, uh, or feels pervasive in your life and, and is not, it's not stopping you from like living your life but it's also not really going away like he understands that he understands why art appeals to jenny or like the artistic side of her in a way that you know there's that whole conversation that she has with with max about how zot zot's form of self-expression is through like his his deeds of heroism and things like that whereas woody uh you know I, I don't know that we see him doing art per se but he obviously from that conversation understands um the appeal of art to Jenny and, and views himself as an artist in a, in a way as well yeah I you you put it very well that he sort of he's able to empathize with Jenny because zot is zat <laughs> a lot of the times Zot seems a little selfish to me mm-hmm. um in the way that you know well and it's also that their relationship so revolves around Zot and what's going on in his life and his world that um that sort of, you know, he sort of naturally becomes the star of the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas Woody is more of a normie. Uh <laughs> <laughs> and yes, kit, like you said, can can understand her her humanity, basically, is what it is. Like he understands that she has feelings that she can beat herself up that she can feel bad and he's able to empathize with that and so that's yeah but we i feel like we also see this a lot in stories not just comics but like stories in general where there's sort of a love triangle where it's one person is sort of the one who makes more sense and then the other but then the other person i don't don't know i don't know it's like more appealing more more charismatic more kind of desirable in in his way although again yes hot woody etc. yes cetera. yes you, like yeah but yeah even beyond you know physical attractiveness yeah. um because he he has like a, a magnetism and like an electricity t- about him that woody as as much as he is very like sensitive and thoughtful and like good-natured and good-humored he will obviously never have that same level of just like raw charisma that zat has Right. And also, you know, that, like I said, Zot's, Zot's relationship with Jenny is so directly tied to his world. Mm -hmm. And it's a world that Jenny obviously has a huge amount of interest in or affection for. And so I think that, you know, it makes sense that I'm, it doesn't, I'm not confused as to why she would want Zot or be with Zot, but, their relationship, you know, it's it's hard for Zot to be vu- emotionally vulnerable. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think, because, you know, that that's basically the one time we really see that, which is an early part of the developing of their relationship, is when they're on the spaceship, and he's sort of talking about his uh, history. Yeah, his secret or his, origin. Yes, his secret origin, childhood. And that's sort of the first moment where we see that, that wall come down a little and the fact that Jenny is able to get through to him in that way that's sort of the basis of their relationship i feel like that Jenny is the one who sees the truth behind Zot or is able to see is able to relate to him in a way that so someone from our earth would right <laughs> she is almost the Woody to Zot's Jenny where he where she is capable of having this higher level of emotional intelligence and relating to him on that level and and like the friend the friends who he has from his earth have never seen him even really struggle let alone fail um and and so the idea of showing them like where the place that he goes to when he does like have adversity and fails to overcome it um you can understand why it's easier to talk about those things with Jenny as opposed to even someone like Vic who is presented as kind of the more mature of Zot's, uh, Zot's, Zot's crew. Yeah, I, I think there's a part that's really funny to me where Jenny and Vic are talking and Jenny's like, hey, remember like 10 issues ago when you were like more of a, a ruffian? <laughs> Devil <laughs> May Care that? type. Uh... <laughs> but yes, so we can sort of dive into yeah let's let's talk seasons of dreams let's get let's yes. get into zybox <laughs> yes the uh oh yeah this is it so again it's the design of the villains in this series is simply peerless and zybox is another one who i love zybox rules he is an upper body sitting on top of a, a blocky pyramid who when we first meet him his mouth is like a hard white line and over time becomes a, like a more and more insane grin <laughs> which smile. i'm addicted to <laughs> oh man cybox yes Zybox is probably my favorite villain like i like deco and the, i like the way that deco gets developed or later on in this uh sort of run part but i think Zybox is my favorite the the imagery of as soon as uh is it Ernesto? Yeah. Cortez. The marimba player. <laughs> that's also yes, that ongoing bit of the different villains being part of Max's Cortez is also very funny. Um but yes, as soon as Ernesto is like his eyes will flash once he's found a solution. Yeah. I was like, "Oh, this is going to be a great. <laughs> this is going to be a great panel." And then it is. It is indeed a great panel. I can not I believe that's when we first see him smile. Is is when I'm just flipping back through uh to to see see what I can see. Yeah, Zybox is a I find a really interesting villain as well. And this story so on his website, Scott McLeod says that when he is describing Zot to people, he says it's a, a mashup of Peter Pan, Buck Rogers, and Marshall McLuhan. Um which like I don't I don't really see a lot of McLuhan per se not that I'm like so well read in Marshall McLuhan, but I I I don't see a ton of Marshall McLuhan in most of the stories, but I think Zybox is the one where you can really see it where the the thematic layer to the story or or a big part of the story and, and a big part of his threat is his total control over media, his ability to control radio, his ability to control TV. Um, and that's, that's kind of like the avenue by which he poses a threat. That's like very McLuhan y to me. Um, and, and I think also what sort of differentiates him from the other villains that we meet is that he's the only one who, um, poses a threat to Jenny's world as opposed to Zot's. Yeah. The, the, you talked about in our last episode that a lot of Zot's villains are technology focused in some way. Um, a lot, a lot of the things, the things mainly I noticed were that they were either related to technology or somehow related to art, and both. And that it seems like he likes characters where he can explore both of those ideas, because like even even the blotch, like who is you know sort of a societal allegory, um, sort of similar to Zybox, where you know it's about how corporations and the media can control and affect things, and how. Zot's celebrity has an impact on the world, but yes, I and then and then also the when the blotch like disintegrates, it's again just like him, Scott Cloud that is wanting to get into like just some crazy stuff (laughs) um yeah so it's i was i was planning to bring up my my previous ruminations on uh, on the villains because in the commentary pages mcleod writes about it uh like at length kind of what he had in mind for um this stuff so he he describes so there's the six main villains right there's um the de-evolutionaries bellows the blotch uh Zybox, Deco, and Ninejack9. Nine. And so he divides them into two into two groups of three where the Evolutionaries, the Blotch and Bellos are like the loud, impotent villains, and Zybox, Deco, and uh Ninejack Nine are the quiet, menacing villains. And so when he talks about it, he says that they're each supposed to represent, um, like a possible vision of the future. And then he kind of oh. set their menace based on <laughs> how likely he perceived, uh, that possible future to be, which is funny to me because, like, so the de-evolutionaries I see as sort of like, um, they're, they're kind of like, time machine to me like where it, in HT yeah, was like the apocalyptic. time. Yeah. like you go so far into the future that technology has like completely vanished and like human society has regressed back to like a caveman Yes cave or that man-esque. there's been like a nuclear war exactly, or something yeah but <laughs> hilariously the other two futures that he views as uh less likely to happen <laughs> are uh like a pollution-mired industrialist <laughs> yeah like capitalist world yeah. and uh, yeah and the blotch is supposed to be like where, like the corporate forces have like taken over the the world and and dictate everything and <laughs> he looks at the, it's just funny to imagine like in 86 or 87 or whatever he's like ah yeah those will never happen <laughs> whereas like yes. now i think that like what the future is represented by by Bellos and uh, and the blotch are like fairly clearly the most pressing uh, or most concerning to us right now yes well Certainly the the thing about the blotch is that his he sort of represents i'd say like the external struggles of modern society where you know he the blotch we live in a society i just want to get that in there. First of all we do absolutely. Uh yes yeah, so i think that the blotch is sort of rep- more representative of the you know capitalism of money being involved in politics of corporate interests sort of driving the direction of how society progresses, whereas well like so so in that situation nine jack nine would sort of represent like technology taking over so all three of the quiet villains are technological to in his mind to some way the way he that that he phrases it is deco is the future where we become our technology zybox right. is the future where our technology becomes us and nine jack nine is the future where our technology obliterates human life completely right that's 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 perfect. Uh, well said, Scott. <laughs> you really understand your own comic. Uh, yes, but yeah, I was I was mainly thinking of deco as sort of being representative of the internal sort of struggle that I think would be best representative of the present right now, where it's sort of you know it's it's the our devices are supposed to be bringing us further together, but they're actually driving (laughs) us further apart. You are on one with (laughs)
1: these
0: these insights into uh, our modern life. Yes, I really understand the modern world. But yes, but, you know, obviously we, specifically we as in the two of us, Uh like to make that joke. But it is also, you know, somewhat accurate that technology has these negative impacts on our sort of social lives and happiness and can you know adversely impact those things and so i think that if i were to sort of paint what the present would look like based on those six options i think that blotch would sort of represent the external difficulties that we face and then maybe deco is sort of more the internal difficulties Mm -hmm. yeah i i I think that to get back to zybox our, our main villain here well but not completely getting off this topic i think that if i if i was like rating because in some ways like the blotch you're right like the blotch is kind of emblematic of the present so to i would say is Bellos to an extent so too is deco um i would say of the remainder i think zybox who represents kind of like a total deregulation of technology um a total like deregulated advancement of artificial intelligence, uh, and and like turning over, um, our entire infrastructure to to artificial intelligence is kind of like the scariest future to me. I have a hard time at like totally getting what McCloud is getting at with Nine Jack Nine, but as far as the future that he represents. Like, I kind of just see Nine Jack Nine as like the next step past ZaiBox, like robot evolution. Yeah, yeah. He he's he's a more He's he's not a, he's not the most allegorical villain of those three. He basically just represents like what if a computer killed you? <laughs> uh, what? Yeah, <if? laughs> that's hey, that's a that should be black. That's what Black Mirror is all about. <laughs> that is what Black Mirror is all about. Um, let's let's talk briefly about our middle issue of this trio, yes, which is the one. Issue 14. Yes, number fourteen is the one where Jenny has been captured by Zybox, pulled inside his body, and she wakes he up eat her yeah he, he eat her uh she wakes up and um believes that she is or or wakes up in a world where everyone around her is telling her that there is no zot and it was all something that she made up during like a severe mental breakdown yes i'm always into these episodes like whatever episode or you know issue or whatever where someone goes into a world where it's like but honey the television show (laughs) wasn't a real thing i i'm always on board for this trope i wish there's probably a name for it i'm gonna look at tv tropes and you talk more about that um yeah i i likewise am like fairly into that idea generally and i i think this issue was very well received at the time i think it got an Eisner nomination for best single issue It doesn't totally connect for me, to be honest, Um, I think in part because there is only one issue to to get into it. And even then, like if they don't spend the full issue in this world, I guess what I'm getting at is like it doesn't feel to me like McLeod is ever actually trying to convince you that there's any possibility that Zot actually doesn't exist. Which like I mean I I guess you any any kind of like reader with any any level of insight into the story wouldn't be like wow I can't believe it Zot doesn't actually exist but it yeah it just to me if there's never any doubt in my mind and I feel like if he was successful in creating a sense of doubt about whether or not it any of it was real then this issue would be like an all timer for me Um, but without it. Yeah it it feels it feels a little uh, lackluster I guess maybe because it just fails to live up to unrealistic expectations. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I'd, I'd say that pretty much always. There, there was never going to be a situation where I was going to believe that thought wasn't real. So that I feel like I was able to go in sort of without really considering that as like a possibility for right. me to get. Get let down or anything like that. Uh, the thing that most reminded me of of was uh, issue eight, where they go where they sort of go behind right. the door and see this other world. But yes, I I, I found this pretty very effective uh, actually. Where it, I think it's less about the idea of Zot being real and more just the idea of like because another thing that gets brought up in these eye boxes is just sort of like going after your dreams and the ways that that can sort of that that can be a positive thing and the way that that can be a negative thing and i think that sort of this issue sort of represents the negative side of it that you can be so caught up in going after this thing that you want to be real that you sort of lose sight of the real world right um, this this issue uh, also includes uh, an all time sus moment for me, which is when Jenny wakes up nude inside Zybox and <laughs> Ernesto. <laughs> Ernesto reassuringly tells her, "Ah, you found your clothes. Good. He was going to incinerate such things, but I rescued them in time. I assure you, you weren't physically violated in any way. Dot dot dot. Just." <gasps> quote-unquote scientific procedure just science stuff (laughs) thanks (laughs) (laughs) what are you talking about i think i think what i did also uh question that a little i think what it was is that scott mcleod liked that image and was like well it would make sense also we see a little penis from a distance yeah we should do (laughs) <laughs> but you're talking about like for her to wake up like cold and naked in yes, the, the she was panel like... where she wakes up like the background of Zybox's interior is like very striking. Yes, I, th- I think that's, I think he liked that image and liked that moment, but also he didn't want there to be any sort of implication or any question, right, like any kind of sexual violence or anything like that. Yes, exactly. And so like, and so he just had very quickly has someone to be like, uh, it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. I, I just feel like having Ernesto
1: <laughs> be the one to He's
0: that Ernesto does not make <laughs> me feel safe. Yeah, I feel like it would be better if, if she just had like a moment of dialogue with zybox where he if he was like that's true ah, because he can't you like you are awake like not to yeah. worry your clothes are here incinerated uh yes i i would agree with that um the other thing did you think or hope that we would get to see what Zot's dream was um i think i think it would have been interesting certainly but I like, I like that he chooses to instead spend the time uh, with like Butch and Peabody and Max. Um, and, uh, I know these aren't Pole Patrol officers, but, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but they basically so, are. Some, some Pole Patrol equivalent. I think it's, it's interesting. Like I said, I like that mcluhan stuff where they're like, the Cybox is so dangerous to this world because he is, uh, like in control of all media right now and he's using that to, to control people. Like, I think that's an interesting idea worth chasing down. I think in a way, it's it's like we can kind of imagine what, what Zot's dream is. And I think it's less just dis- like part of why re- the reason that Jenny is able to escape is because she's so distressed by her dream that she like immediately is like, eh, this isn't real. I feel like Zot's dream is just like he's happy and his parents are alive. Yeah, and, and he's I like, say, like, it's it's a little more like for the man who has everything, which is the yes. like the story where Superman imagines that he's like alive and well on Krypton and lived like a normal life there. Yeah, I feel like that's like there's pretty much two versions of that story, which is basically what she just said. Either it's the you refuse to accept that the thing wasn't real and so you have to like fight against it, or you are given the thing that you want in your real life and so you're just sort of like completely content and then sort of start to realize that something's wrong and so i don't don't think we really needed to see that because there we've seen enough you know we've seen truman i guess truman show didn't exist yet but you know truman show or anything like that where it's the world seems idyllic and then it's eventually revealed to be a little more sinister yeah, I think uh, I think we can imagine pretty clearly what Zot's dream world is probably like and the fact that he doesn't wake up from it um, under under like his own power. Uh, you know, I think I think there's that what he really wants to set out to accomplish here is to establish something about Jenny rather than something about Zot. And so it makes sense mm-hmm. to me that we're we're just going to see Jenny's dream and and then use her to be kind of the uh, vehicle for exposition to learn a bit more about what Zybox has been doing while she's been in the dream world right exactly um and then we get into yes yeah, so floyd saves the day floyd floyd saves the day grr. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're not committed to this the, the world the world dances to the uh, tick of ernesto's watch as he lies dead against zybox's uh power power cell he wasn't dead what i didn't he, he is dead people talked about that it. as well but i didn't I, I never perceived him to be dead in that um but anyways, that's probably just me misreading it. He, but, Yeah, yes. he, he definitely, like, kind of, like, fades away. Um, although... That Isn't he, are, like, inside of a box at some point? He's he's inside... Oh, oh, so what you see is that after uh, Zybox gets struck with lightning, his, like, dying thoughts are that he replays... He's replaying oh, the, yes, the he's conversation remembering. Yeah, that Ernesto was having. Right after he like sets his Zybox loose uh, through That's his right. like poorly worded command or his you know expression of whatever. Yes, I I like the way that that was brought back in. But yeah, yeah, his his death scene is good because uh like he's he threw himself on the power converter. He's like slowly dying, and Max Max is there, and he kind of like apologizes for it, and his last words are, uh, "Things are getting pretty fuzzy." I've got a friend in New York who plays marimba Max. I could give you her number oh, yes, and then, yes, <laughs> yes. then he's dead, which pour one out for poor Ernesto and his his marimba indeed um <laughs> the the reveal later that, that essentially nine Jack nine has been playing <laughs> in Max's band. uh we'll talk about that in a second, but but yes, But i all I wanted to say was that the idea of like. This like global brainwashing thing, like being foiled and then causing the world to all dance together, is like a very zot idea. Yeah, certainly. The call of the call of the wild issue, I, I honestly I could take or leave. <laughs> uh, like it's funny, but I I don't feel the need per se for like a whole issue of of pure comedy. Um no, it just feels like a breather. Yeah. Although like you said, there's some very good bits like the the (laughs) typing elephant into the gun (laughs) is hilarious. The gun is so funny. Um Jenny trying to get Zot to tell her that he thinks she's attractive while she's in monkey form. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) It's also hysterical to me. Uh that's also like weirdly the first time we see them like have a serious conversation about their relationship. Yeah. Until until uh, like Woody kind of sticks uh, or or prompts her to initiate that conversation again, but yeah, it's it's a lighthearted breather. Um, you know the de always fun to <laughs> to see them. I do uh, another very good bit is when uh, Butch is chasing after them and being like, yes. "Don't you guys remember me? <laughs> I was Jimmy Stinky. <laughs> I love you guys." They're like, "Get away! <laughs> we don't know you." <laughs> But yes, it, uh, it we go from there into uh, Eyes of Deco, which artistically is uh, a total flex. <laughs> yes, exactly. The fr- like the first three pages of the Eyes of Deco are just him being like, yeah, here's like some art projects I've been working on. And like later we see him strolling through nature and we get his perspective. And likewise, it's it's total like. Scott McCloud being like, uh, like yeah, there's like the manga influence, but also like here's some other types of things that I like to draw. Yeah, like I'm just gonna draw some wild stuff. (laughs) Yeah, the the art. So you said you don't care for the black and white art, and obviously that's kind of neither here nor there with regards to the deco stuff. But since we're talking about the art, anyways, uh, go ask King. Um, Well, the thing is, the deco stuff I definitely like. I like when he sort of uses the black and white form to his advantage, uh, which he, you know, there, there's a part in the, the part in the Zybox arc where him and Vi- where Zot and Vic are playing that video game and it's sort of all rendered in right, like, yeah. They're like all black. It's and like it's the, the negative of the image. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Like that I thought was really cool. And I, I did grow to like appreciate it more as time goes on. Uh, but in the first few issues, like, it's just like, I just missed the color. Like yeah. Zot's world is so like vibrant and so full of that color that it's hard to go to just a direct black and white. Also, it was 50 cents more and there was no color in it. I think that that should be talked about as a price gouge (laughs) uh it it might have just been the natural uh increase of price between probably was between when the two issues came out but uh the yeah the only the only time that i felt i really missed the color is the the page from i think it's in number 12 uh like the second of the planet earth issues when he like takes jenny up above the clouds to be like earth is beautiful like that's that's a great page um and i think a great kind of like thesis statement on zot and color might have been nice for that page but other than that oh yeah i just (laughs) i just appreciate i just appreciated how well it used color that it was kind of sad that it was gone Yes. Um, the reason I laughed there is because I was flipping uh, back to back to the issues that we're currently talking about the deco issues. And I did uh, pause for a moment on the first panel of the first page of number 13, which is the first issue of season of dreams. Uh, pull this pull this open for me. Does this image seem like deliberately and overtly sexual to you? Yes, I was also like what? She's Come like on here. lying legs splayed. The sun is positioned like exactly over where her crotch is and Zot is like in the act of diving into it. <laughs> Which uh, yeah, I, that seems like explicitly sexual to me in a way that this comic rarely gets. Um yes, and the the other thing, the other scene is uh jenny in the shower in yeah issue number yeah. 11 which it, which he talks about being like that was like a reference a to gag yeah that someone wrote where it's like that where someone wrote a separate comic where the joke is that like zot shows up while jenny is in the shower right I th- it might have been a, a like in dimension 10 and a half thing where it's like haha imagine if he showed up and she was showering <laughs> this no it's coffee. just it's just Lord. like it's literally just like a one panel comic someone in some comics magazine i remember um but yes, but the the other thing I noticed speaking of what you just said was that uh in the oh, you don't know this. I'm about to drop a exclusive Here on you. we go. is that in in the Zot in dimension 10 and a half in issue oh, I don't remember what issue it is, but in one of the issues it's talks about it's it talks about how Butch turns into a monkey when he goes back to Zot's world. Uh-huh. And then in the next issue is the first time we see that in, oh, in the actual comic <laughs> itself. Funny. So it's it's done in Dimension 10 and a half before we see it in Zot. And so I was like, did he just know that that was going to happen? Or because he does specifically point it out, it's like, there's like an asterisk and it's like, Butch turns back into a monkey because he's in Zot's world. Yeah, that's funny. I was like, did he know that was going to happen? Or did Scott McCloud look at that and was like, that's a funny idea and just go with I that. I wouldn't be surprised if that was the case. I wouldn't be either. And then like, and just the the joke at the end of uh, issue sixteen, where it's just <laughs> where Butch can't be turned back into a human because he's been a monkey for too darn long. <laughs> yes, is uh, is extremely good. Um, I'm just skimming through my uh, the his like end notes after after number sixteen, and he doesn't say anything about it. Usually, uh, when he like is cribbing from someone else, he he will like say, "I got this idea from uh, what have you." He doesn't say anything about it, but I, I could see it going either way. Right. But yes, um, to go back to Ides of Deco. Great. Great. Uh, I think these are probably my two favorite issues, uh, in, in this, like the heroes and villains chunk is what he uses to refer to this whack. Yeah. I really like these issues with the, like the, the return of hot Woody, uh, the return of Deco is great. I really like how he resolves this story. I really like the stuff with Jenny and Max. Um, yeah, I think I think he's really really clicking here. Yeah, and and I think that like I talked about, this is sort of where you first get back into Zot world, and you sort of like allow that to be a more fleshed out and a more nuanced place rather than in like Call of the Wild, where it's strictly like a light hearted superhero world, and the same of Planet Earth as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you get some of that in the Zybox arc, but it's also like zybox immediately comes to earth and and that's where yes, his exactly really is and that that whole issue with jen like jenny's whole conflict is either in a, an earth that at least looks like her own world even if it isn't or it's inside of zybox itself mm-hmm. so it's it's not it's not quite the same um but yes i i totally agree with you um it does feel like deco is just like an inspiration for scott mcleod um definitely for his art because he did he, yeah every, every time again, it's like a Deco POV shot he like goes ham <laughs> yes even more so in this one yeah. but like in, in the earlier issues like those Deco issues are sort of where it felt like he sort of found his footing and was also able to like do some wild things with the art and so it seems like Deco is just like a way for him to sort of like let loose with that Uh yes and then you have the resolution which is that basically someone talks about it in a letters page and I liked their sort of take that of course Deco wouldn't be a threat because like he is like mentally broken. Right. Like, and, and and sort of admiring that the portrayal of someone with mental illness is not like they have a mental illness, but also they're a genius and are like capable of making like master plans and doing evil things. It's just that like, his mental illness is, like, so crippling that he is not a threat at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, I I see as well another reason why I really like this is that this is the first time, maybe not the very first time, but this is one of the times when reading through these issues, I'm like, okay, he's, like, started to work on understanding comics. Um, right. He's playing with the form, for sure. Yeah, and, like, like. The scene where uh, Deco like looks at the looks at the paintings with Max or the photos or or what have you, and he does like the the series like the close-ups on what they are. That's like very just just like in the structure of the page, it reminds me a lot of uh, of understanding comics. The way that he'll do like these close-ups on things to and and talk about them, and then having um deco then start to talk about like kind of the idealized form and uh and how how like art allows you to capture sort of the perfect ideal in a way um those are things that i think he sort of starts to get at or get into with uh with understanding comics as well yeah he's very much writing what he knows a lot of the time it feels like in terms of like he clearly thinks a lot about art and like what being an artist means and things like that and then incorporates them back into especially the villains a lot like so many of them feel like they're related to art or metaphors for art in that way um the panel where he, he pops the guy's head <laughs> yeah is in, very good in like abstract <laughs> in deco in deco, in vision. deco- vision yes uh, although I, it's funny that in like those DecoVision panels, he his design is unchanged. Like he never abstracts himself, uh, which I'm sure there's some deep artistic Not meaning you can derive the... from that. But he, well, that's true. Uh, he's already, he's, he's perfected... already made himself into his own perfect vision. That's true. But yes, and I, I really like that sequence, that sort of hallucination sequence at the very end with Sarah, where it's like, well, the logical endpoint of your belief system is that you should also be erased <laughs> because yeah because like you are chasing a, a realm of like idealized forms and if you physically exist in it then you are still representative of the shortcomings of reality uh so you need right. to go to yeah the the blank white panel after he or like the the fully white yeah. page after he says behold my masterpiece and then wipes himself out and he just takes a full empty yeah. page is like oh chef's kiss to the to that yeah. for me I get like a little spine spine chills reading that part. Yeah. When when a comic like the one of the best my favorite things in comics is like a good beat. Yeah. And that's like yeah. When whenever someone just like does a beat in that way like whether like it's a splash page or just a panel or anything like that like whenever it just like takes a second to be like quiet for a second and then like goes back in. I like that in music too. Mm. Hmm. Um, yeah, I, I would have even liked a double page, like two, two pages. Yeah, I, I, think... thought, I thought, I thought it was going to, con- I thought I, there was like one percent of me that was like, that could just be the end of the comic and the remaining pages could be blank. Yeah. I think, I think if I was, uh, his, his editor, <laughs> I would be saying like, cause, cause in mine, uh, the left-hand side page is the one where he does behold my masterpiece and then the right page is blank. I would be trying to get that page onto a right-hand page right. so that you turn the page and it's just two two blank pages. I think that would have like obviously it's very effective here. It has a lot of oomph. But he'll talk in understanding comics. I think about the, like the power of a page turn. Um, yeah, and I think if you were turning the page onto onto two blank pages, that would be like quite quite something. Yeah. Also, uh, this great Mumford song, son's song about. <laughs> That. Just a little just a little something for me. Uh-huh. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, so are, are we... Pretty much have we said what we need say about, to say about Deco? So much. So I feel like so much of my thoughts on like this stretch is just like, yeah, this is good stuff. It is good stuff. <laughs> Getting to 99 is, is interesting. Um, I like, like you said, it's, it's pure action. Like pretty it's much... Like it's, n- it's, it's it's basically, basically an destroy. action movie. <laughs> I was going to say it really reminded me of The Raid. See, it re- what it reminds me of most is like a video game, almost like a quick time reaction thing in a video game or like Yes. Like Someone it, talked the, about that in the letter. Did you see that? I think I know they mentioned like an RPG, but yeah, to me it's it, like the resource management of it of yeah. it, and like having to find a place to like recharge the bazooka and all, all of that stuff. I was like this is very video gamey, which is also a great moment when he plugs in it and then it jumps <laughs> off and he sort 200. of has that look on his face yeah um in the i, I don't really have a lot to say about this because it is a little bit uh, mindless um chuck austin fills in on the art i think very well um he is uh more notorious these days for one of the worst x-men runs ever <laughs> as a writer <laughs> um but but his art is uh, is very good as a fill-in from a cloud here in the HarperCollins collection I have, he <laughs> includes a copy of the script, quote unquote, that he sent to Chuck Austin for these issues. And he says this is how he scripts every issue and it is completely demented. Um, I'm just flipping to it to see if I can find it. I'm too, uh, I'm too deep into the blotch here. What's in the blotch? That's something. So what he sent him was not a script, but a full breakdown of both issues um and if you look at so what he had like it's fully laid out he's got all the text all the dialogue all the sound effects every page broken down and like roughed out it's basically the finished issue uh but like just done rough Uh, all right and and then he says that he (laughs) Uh, so yeah this is what he says about it a typical artifact of my borderline ocd working methods my first step in plotting the story was to make tiny rough scribbles of each page with felt tip pens on three by five note cards then hinge them accordion style on the back with drafting tape so that they could be viewed all at once or in spreads so it's like a stack of pages that you can like unfold to see the whole thing the whole thing at once what that is psychotic. Yeah. And then he says, my final script took the form of comprehensive layouts drawn full size in markers and also hinged with tape for accordion style viewing. This was the only script I sent to Chuck and the only kind of script I've ever create for myself. I've never typed a full script for stories. I plan to draw preferring instead to work out all pacing, composition and dialogue visually with these elaborate comps. Um, this contributed to <laughs> delays and the stiffness in my own art. By the time I inked any given issue of Zot, I typically already drawn each panel two or three times. That it completely demented. <laughs> Insane. Yeah, obviously, like, now everything makes perfect sense. But like <laughs> You were, like, planning a wedding and had to do this? Yeah, the fact that he is basically drawing every issue three times, from the note cards to the roughs to, like, the final. So it's actually more like four, because... He, sh- he shows thumbnails of the of the note cards and they are similarly like they might not have all the text on them and stuff but it's like a full storyboarding of the issue then he does it at full size in what like you could basically publish what is <laughs> what what is included here and then he sends that to chuck austin who basically faithfully recreates it but normally he would just draw it himself it's completely insane <laughs> Um. I Yes, I have the letter here that someone wrote. This is from Malcolm Bourne from Cricklewood, London. Mm. <laughs> yes, I suppose that for Zot, getting to 99 was like being involved in the ultimate video game, while for Jenny, it was mm. like playing the game. <laughs> I wouldn't be surprised if that's where you got the idea from very little plot premise needed just the necessity to get to the end but with the logical twist of the 100th floor at the end and the game was complete with various weaponry of limited lifespan defensive fields changing environments space invaders deluxe exclamation mark <laughs> yeah but uh yeah like i said not not much to say about that but you can basically they they include the full quote unquote script and you know the the art is like roughed out for sure but yeah it's it's insane (laughs) if you can it's also if you can find it like i recommend looking at it to see how detailed these pages are that he sends as the like quote-unquote script it's crazy I, i can imagine uh it's also a very zodian thing that for the you know with the exception of that end part with the bazooka um it's uh story about fighting your way through like hordes of enemies Mm -hmm. but the way that you get through is like you don't fight anyone yeah (laughs) you just like move as quickly as you can and avoid everyone and don't hurt anything because you need your bazooka to blow doors open (laughs) yes (laughs) um so yeah that's all i really have to say about uh getting to 99 i'm not sure if you have more that you want to add yeah no not really just that the sort of the idea behind it that the it's basically that the place was set to self-destruct is a very like cold warish scenario and you have the doomsday clock yes where and it is it also th- a very zoddish twist that actually there was no saboteur and it was just a dreep <laughs> like accidentally doing it all yes a cute little dreep a sweet dreep give it one vote for my favorite character <laughs> you you're actively hurt. I guess Peabody's getting five. She sure is. I, Peabody's not even my favorite character, but I'm giving him a first place vote to put him to put him over. right. so yes, you're voting strategically. Of yeah. <laughs> uh, but yes, this is followed by "Can't Buy Me Love," which is the the <laughs> two story. issue blotch story where Zot, uh signs away his soul mm-hmm. to whatever soda company. Which bingo, bingo Pop no, not, is. Yes, uh, bingo. And Comet, is, Comet Cola is the yes. Those are the those are the two big Coke and drink Pepsi companies <laughs> in Zot World. Wait, oh wait, was this at the same time as Blue Pepsi? No, Blue Pepsi was like we weren't born when this issue came out. Pepsi Blue was yeah. like the early two thousands, I guess so. But the fact that they it keep might have been like New Coke, Coke era, era blue, or, yeah, or, or maybe. like pepsi crystal that was like a thing yeah that's true i think uh, i think they just he just thinks it's funny that like blue is basically a flavor <laughs> right yes um yeah these these issues i don't know about you i found the a plot with zat pretty dull here like it's kind of funny um but like the whole issue 22 where it's like him chasing the blotch around charity the like capitalist world is, like, yeah, it's pretty dull to me, especially when you contrast with the stuff that, like, the B-plot with Jenny and Woody, where, like, they go on their date. Like, again, this is is sort of the first 10 issues in Microcosm because he's got this plot, he's got this villain, the blotch that he's had kind of in mind for a long time being introduced, and he, like, for the purposes of the story, has to keep going back. But I just feel like he clearly would rather spend, like, 10 pages every issue on on jenny and woody like hanging out in a university town um and like going to see buskers yeah that's definitely the far more important elements of this little story i mean the thing about the blotch is like you talked about it how the big the villains are either you know loud and competent or quiet and menacing and the blotch is the only loud and competent villain who gets like Two an issues. entire story yeah. arc devoted to his machinations. And it's just like, it's the blotch, man. It truly <laughs> is the blotch. The blotch is not, like, a th- really... Like, he doesn't come across threatening. Like, he's vaguely interesting he's just like he's like the bad guy from space jam like <laughs> he's just like a comic cigar chomping businessman yeah. who wants like everything to be a business yeah and it's like everyone has their price. and <laughs> 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 that's me chomping on my cigar right of course and then yeah the more the more important thing we get is sort of at the very end where jenny and zot sort of DTR as the kids say yes. to find the relationship. Uh all the, yeah it's it's a weird uh conversation because he's like she she says do you love me and he says uh and he's like do you love me and she's like uh Guess. <laughs> like now that now that you've mentioned it, I don't really know. This is yeah, I feel like comparing comparing her conversation with Zot there to the com- the various conversations we've seen her have with Woody are what really to me are like, you know, Woody Woody's making a uh, he's got a good showing for himself going here. Hot Woody making moves, as my notes once said. Hot Woody is making moves. I think I think that, that it boils down to that. We've reached the point in the series where there's not really time in, like, the Zot world stories for him to, like, stop and just, like, hang out with Jenny. Like, there's not very many pages like that, whereas when they're on, like, normal Earth, um, there's tons of time for hangout stuff. And, like, like, the scene where they're hanging out listening to music in Jenny's room in, like, the first issue is good. But there's just no room for him to have stuff like like when uh, Jenny like sees Woody on the side of the road and like walks home with him, or like I said, there there's like like half of that issue is devoted to the two of them going on like a, a date together. There's just not room for her to have those kinds of interactions with Zot, especially in an issue like this, which is so so busy and like so running to to kind of like get the. <laughs> getting like all the all the stuff that he obviously wants to hit on like you know there's a there's that funny gag where he like gets that guy's like bank account and changes the balance from (laughs) 68,857 dollars to seven (laughs) dollars yes he was like his magic eraser (laughs) yeah which is uh v funny and like you know obviously he wants to show off like faith co and like government inc and like all the all the like capitalist nightmare stuff on charity um and, and get to that Zot triumphant panel where he's like, so sue me, ha ha. Um, it, it's overstuffed with ideas um, for, for what he wants to show with the blotch. And in his like, it's, yeah, it's just another case of competing interests where he's like, he does like those ideas. He wants to show them, but he's more interested in the interpersonal character stuff. And so there's just not enough room for him to do both yeah I think I think definitely a common thread of sot is that he has more ideas than he can even fit on the page, yeah, and especially like with him like clearly having difficulty creating the comic like fully writing and drawing everything that you're yeah it's it's like he's trying to get so much into one issue, which is great in its own way because it's like, wow, every issue is like full of really good stuff, but then it also feels like you're sort of running around sometimes. And that sort of gets back to what I was talking about earlier with how Zot's world just feels like less intrinsic to the emotional or the thematic. Well, you know, thematic certainly with the blotch and stuff, but it feels less important than the stuff we see in Jenny's world yes um in his like post notes on this issue mcleod relates like this funny anecdote where he talks about how he and ivy were like friends with kevin eastman and peter laird at the time that he was working on this the creators obviously of uh teenage Mutant ninja turtles right and and this coming out at the height of like turtle mania when they were like merchandising absolutely everything <laughs> and he yeah he's so he's writing about how like part of the reason that he thought the blotch was so scary was because they were making like no money. And the idea of like a world where you have to pay for everything. And someone has the power to just like tap your, tap your card and steal your life savings. (laughs) He was like horrifying. And then he tells this story about how like, yeah, so we were at the grocery store. We were friends with like Kevin and Pete and, um, I, I, we were grocery shopping and I saw like on the shelf this box of uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, like mac and cheese, like Kraft dinner, <laughs> merchandise to Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. And I thought it was really funny. And so I like picked it up and I was going to buy it and show Ivy and then i looked at the price and it was too expensive (laughs) i couldn't afford to buy the teenage mutant ninja turtles mac and cheese (laughs) as like gag uh a gag thing to be able to like go home and call them and be like hey i bought your macaroni ha 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 um, and then and then segues out of that to talk about how Kevin Eastman basically like funded him uh writing understanding comics, but I thought that was <laughs> a funny anecdote and and gives some insight into maybe why the blotch has some uh, some interest to him. yes, I mean that sounds like lack of commitment to the bit, quite honestly, but truly, <laughs> but you know <laughs> uh yeah, so I think we can press on to ghost in the machine which is the second last arc of uh of this section yeah Uh, it starts with jenny listening to talking heads which is cool no it starts with uh, a phenomenal image of nine jack nine like skating on the third rail through a subway system (laughs) which is amazing yeah like i said i read the black and white issues first uh so this was like the first time i'd ever seen nine jack nine and this like opening sequence of where it shows him like appearing to all these people through their technology is like completely horrifying like the close-up of the outlet after the baby almost touches it yes it's like that's that's exactly what i was talking about with like taking a beat where it's like ooh the scary face of the plug yeah and, and again that's That feels to me like a very understanding comics thing that, uh, you know, we can talk about it when we get to understanding comics, but it feels very evocative to me, like him moving through the the traffic lights is really cool as well. And then when she so she is, uh, yes, listening to the talking heads, which is very cool. Um, but when she sees his face in the microwave, I was like, i oh. <laughs> like, not, not knowing anything about him, not knowing how his powers work and seeing that the res like her response is total terror. And the first thing they do is like kill all power to the house. It's yeah, it's just very cool. Especially if you haven't encountered nine Jack nine before it establishes him like very quickly as a menacing figure. Not that, you know, him wrapping his, his arms or his hands around uh, Zot's throat when he <laughs> first appears isn't uh, isn't effective for doing that. But yeah, it, it really establishes the terror of him like right off the bat. Yeah, it definitely people talk uh, a lot in the letters about like how people people use Dr. Doom as an example a lot of like saying like, oh, like this is Zot's Dr. Doom where it's like sort of his his most iconic foe or his greatest foe. Um and I think that yeah, what like you said, that that little section really sells that Nine Jack 9 is like a huge threat. Like it's someone that everyone, including Zot really, is afraid of. Uh and then as we mentioned previously, we go to Woody uh playing his game. <laughs> and when it's it's DMing. someone with a it's but then like it's like someone with a gun. Oh, it's Mayor McCheese <laughs> with a gun. Yes, this is, uh, this is, these are important characters. Uh, when we get into the last chunk of issues, uh, Ronnie, Elizabeth, Bob, and George, uh, Mm -hmm. become like the new, the new extended cast in lieu of like Max and Peabody and, uh, and, um, you know, and company. Not to spoil too much, but the, his being stranded on Earth does not get resolved immediately. Um, and Mm -hmm. so, yeah, this is our first introduction to characters who end up being quite important and really, in some ways the focus of uh, of the last 8 or 9 issues that uh, that are in the run so it's funny to see them here uh he's obviously you know angling towards that yeah um yeah and it also sort of gets across that Woody is hot now and he doesn't <laughs> and he doesn't need them anymore <laughs> i mean i think it's less focused on now he's hot and he doesn't need them anymore but i i actually liked it because they do you know they talk about how he doesn't really seem to have his like heart in the game anymore um but i think it is also reflective of like when he kind of rebukes jenny for saying like you're hot now (laughs) and like so that's great but he's kind of like it doesn't matter if i'm hot woody or or uh scott mcleod avatar woody um hot what are your Woody? yeah i am <laughs> still gonna like hang out with my friends and like play role-playing games with them and write a story about mere mccheese
1: <laughs> with yeah a gun.
0: which is also which is also reflect i just remembered i didn't give my terry thoughts she's cool mm-hmm. um but also kind of mean sometimes but <laughs> yes uh that's that's sort of reflected when Hot Woody shows back up, and Trey is like, "He's still a nerd." <laughs> it's like this is like the hottest man. <laughs> this this allegedly fourteen-year-old boy who's actually yeah. twenty-one now, <laughs> like literally Superman. He looks like Superman. <laughs> he's so hot. Uh, but uh, yes, uh, he 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 appears briefly to challenge uh, Jenny about the nature of their relationship, which uh, you know, good good little sequence there. Yes, I like that him, he and Zot never really, like, they're they're obviously rivals, but they never really, like, face off. No, well, cause they because they like each other and they, like, yes, respect exactly. each other. <laughs> <laughs> because Zot doesn't hate anyone and, and can't Woody. really hate Zot. Yeah. Because, like, not only because, like, he's a good guy, but he's also just, like, so devoid of, like, cynicism. Yeah. Like that's hard to sort of poke holes in him. Yeah, even in that page like he's smiling to see them like make up with each other after they have like that little tiff. Right. Uh, like he's he too much is yeah, invested in people like being happy to to really dislike. Um but the yeah, the overarching story through here of the like this is what you were talking about at the beginning, right? About like it gets a little bit back more into kind of the political reality of uh of Zot's world. Right this especially i mean partly because nine jack nine is present but it yeah. definitely does feel very similar to the you know sort of yeah like the last few issues, issues of, of yeah, the original exactly. run. yeah yeah the story itself i only really appreciate as kind of like the vehicle for all the nine jack nine stuff like uh, yeah it, the the whole like revolution stuff doesn't really interest me that much but seeing seeing like nine jack nine in action is fun yeah, there's a, I think I think as well like one of the most impactful segments from this section of the run is is in these issues I think when Susie the girl who he's like trying to rescue and protect from Nine Jack Nine like unwittingly touches the electrical box and is just like gone. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's vaporized. Yeah, again like completely terrifying and like it's it's an interesting contrast I think to someone like Drufus's death uh, which like played out very very slowly and she kind of she kind of still has like the drufus and vic moment uh right before that happens where Zot tries to like cheer her up and and we kind of like have that have that character moment where the tragedy of the character sort of sinks in um but to yeah to to have her like just be there one second and then gone i think again is like speaks to the the anti-climax again that he that he sort of likes where like there's there's all this build-up like jack is hunting her and when he finally gets her it's just because like they all turned their backs for a second at the wrong at the wrong time like there's no big confrontation with jack and then he finally gets her it's just like they they stopped thinking for a second and like they turned around at the wrong moment it goes back to the when what we talked about last episode, where like you like you mentioned, you mentioned Drufus' death, where they are similarly, while they are very different, they're both very similarly like uncinematic. Um, Drufus, because it's so drawn out, and Susie because like it just happens and then it's over, and it's like you have to like you don't even really see anything, like you don't even know. I I sort of read it as just like. There's something in the box that is electrical and like that's all it really took. Yeah, you can well you can see like on the box it's faded, but like there's a little lightning bolt and like it says like voltage. You can like just like the underground cables. Yeah, there was like a base there at one time that's been destroyed, but the infrastructure is still there. Right. But yes, and and yeah, definitely Zot's reaction to it. It's you know, yeah, it's even harder than he takes the fire in issue 12 like yeah it was it just, the, like, it's the first time uh in like his own world um where he has like tried to save the day and wasn't able to yeah and like and uh, what i really like um i like how it sort of calls back to their conversation the one that you mentioned a second ago mm-hmm. um but yes yeah, just just be like yeah the reason that zot is a hero is because he cares about everyone And so, when someone dies, like, it really affects him. Um, I will say, when the the ending of this issue is very, like, ooh, what's going to happen, in terms of, like, Max is talking about how to kill Nine Jack Nine. Yeah. And Zot sort of has this very, like, stoic expression on his face. Yeah. um, Which, you know, that, that doesn't exactly pay off, per se. No. It's just kind of, like the way that you kill the way that you kill him is that you find him <laughs> and you kill him. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree. It's it the third issue I think is the weakest of the three, but it, but it is also, uh, like the only time really in these issues where we see, uh, like confrontation between Zot and a super villain where they actually like kind of fight. Yeah. Um, and of course, he, he accidentally kills his uh, operator, Sir John Shears, who yeah, that, is the... Yeah, uh, that stuff is just like... I find that stuff interesting, but it's introduced so fast and then resolved. Like, I, I feel like I never really got a sense of, like, what it was. So it's like, is 9Jack9, Nine Nine, like, a program that he is operating? Or is it like he is, like, a persona of him? And then he talks about, like, how... Like that's not the real John Shear, and he like had plastic surgery. Yeah, it it is confusing. Uh, all all that stuff. Um, and speaking of Sir John Shears, he uh, <laughs> in his like liner notes. So I'm I'm prepared to plead ignorance here. He in like says something that indicates that the name Sir John Shears is supposed to be a joke, and I just don't get it. Like what's, what's Sir the joke, John Shears? i I mean i maybe it's a reference to some celebrity that maybe used to exist yeah he he says a lot of readers couldn't buy the way Sir john shears brackets get it get it mr subtlety that's me was allowed to hang out in max's company for so long blah 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 i'm just like i don't get it (laughs) if you could explain the joke that would be much appreciated yeah well i don't know (laughs) <laughs> this is a good segment. <laughs> Truly, uh, yeah. I was hoping you would be able to Google it and figure it out, but we'll uh, we'll have to live in ignorance. I, I am I am trying to Google it, but it's not getting me anywhere yet. Uh, maybe we'll have to add uh, an addendum in our next episode. Yes, perhaps. I'm seeing indeed. that, uh, actually, I don't want to just dock someone, but I I searched it and it can Someone came up on LinkedIn, <laughs> but I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read out their the name and occupation <laughs> credentials. Yeah, yeah. So the the last storyline that we have here is uh Ring in the New which is sort of just like it's it's kind of like the Sinister 6 of uh of Zot but yeah. it all takes place at a party. He he so in his like end notes he describes the this story as basically just a vehicle to like resolve the the pie contest and like get that gag out <laughs> of the way which is funny because in what? some ways there it's like the most important issue of this entire stretch like number yeah. number 27 marks is like is, is how he like indicates that there's going to be a new status quo that lasts for the rest of the run yeah um yeah butch has his friend Bufa. um <laughs> <laughs> <Did> you... <laughs> <laughs> well, I, was, I was going to ask you if you saw what Scott McCloud had talked about how the character was originally named Bufa I have not seen that. I, d- I don't even, like, no, even that, just that, you that's saying not a Bufa. real That's not a real thing. <laughs> but does he have a friend named Bufa? Was that yes, real? I, there's I didn't a character, notice that. There is all. a character named Bufa, <laughs> which I, of course, noticed because Bufa D's Um But yes, oh, and so, great and nuts. It, it is. it really does. Like, sort of resolve a lot of stuff. I mean, it resolves and creates new stuff, but you know, you have the blot showing up and getting turned into his like <laughs> alien form, yes, uh, which is funny. That so I'm, I'm interested. Uh, the the de evolutionary calling 9 Jack 9 the great Satan is also because <laughs> oh. <laughs> he's like technology incarnate, yeah. The The idea that this issue, uh, not I, I wouldn't say introduces but confirms is that. Um, like the, the time flow on Zot's earth is messed up. Yeah. It's funny that he says that this is just a, like a vehicle to get the pie in the face gag out of the way, because it's, this is like probably the most information we get about the nature of Zot's world. It, like I said, it sets up that new status quo. I think we kind of got a hint previously that he was already sort of headed in this direction because in that, like in number, I think it's number 11 where they're just like hanging out, listening to records or uh, mm-hmm. or whichever issue that is, he is, like, looking through uh Jenny's records and notices a Julian Lennon album and then asks if she has the one that she made with his dad, which is supposed to be, like, a yeah. joke about, like, John Lennon wasn't assassinated. But John right. Lennon was assassinated in 1980, and, like, Julian Lennon didn't, re- like produce any music until after that had already <laughs> happened so I yeah I'm not sure if that's like a, a chronological gaffe or if he's already kind of like head faking in this direction but we've already gotten some indication yeah, definitely like it's sort of it, it's it's very clear that the timelines are incongruous in some in one way or another yeah. whether it's you know just that like I I never really believed that it was 1965 on Zot's world Right. um yeah, and then, yeah, that's sort of, it gets into the stuff where Woody, yeah, Woody comes along in this part to Zot's world and talks about how, like, there's things that reference World War II and Vietnam, which never happened. Yeah. Uh, on Zot's world because and things they, like that. Because they had World War One and decided that was enough. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, the other thing is, you can, you can sort of spoil it for me here just because I'm curious. Is, is the idea that, max is like friends with all of the villains ever like does that ever turn into anything Uh, no uh i think that like that's that's really more a function of like max's characterization than it is like something that's ever expounded upon further i think Mm. that he went with that because like zot max is supposed to sort of be representative of uh like what if we took all the good parts about this vision of the future and and like put them all together So like we were talking about how he says the villains are all supposed to represent like one vision of the future, one possible vision of the future. Zot is supposed to be like the the amalgamation of like all the good visions of the future put together into like one person. And I think Max by extension also kind of is so, I've always taken it that his friendship with, like, the fact that, you know, Ernesto is his buddy, Nine Jack Nine is in his <laughs> in his jam band. It's um, just so strange that, like, he, and he's, he knew is what the sense we get, at least. Yeah, he, he, give me one second to pull it up, because he writes about it in the end notes, basically to say, like, it's, it just shows um, the extent to which, Max is, like, an accepting person who, uh, like, values, values, like, harmony, basically. Yeah, that, that, yes, that just sort of stuck out to me. I was like, is this sort of, like, foreshadowing that Max is going to be somehow tied into, like, sinister things, even if it's not that he is a bad guy, but just that he is, like, sort of, you know, like the, the, the scientist, sort of like Ernesta, the scientist who sort of gets into bad things because he is interested in just seeing what's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So he says, um, it's that same, that same section I was just reading where he indicates that Sir John Shears is supposed to be a joke, but, um, yeah, he says Max's comment that Sir John was a fairly nice fellow, all things considered, certainly raised a few hackles. It's a a weird bit, I'll admit. I think I understand where Max is coming from, but I'm not sure I could explain it to anyone else. Both Max and ZA are non judgmental in their dealings with others, but at times, like in this story, that quality may be hard to relate to. So, it, yeah, yeah, like I, I definitely, I like the idea. I find it very funny that like Deco is invited to the party, <laughs> and like. And, like, Nine Jack Nine is, like, allowed to come to the party. <laughs> like, they just sort of, like, reach this agreement that it's like, yeah, well, Nine Jack Nine, he's just, like, a living computer. Yeah. So he's going to drop by. It's just going to be for a little bit. Yeah. Uh, yes, and then, like you mentioned before, we get to that sort of thing where it's leading into 1965 and everyone's brain breaks uh, because it's always 1965 in Zot World, which ultimately culminates in azot and co getting stranded on jenny's earth yes uh a bit of uh <laughs> the seams of the story show through i think a little bit to <laughs> all the all the maneuvering to get it so that it's like he's on her earth there's no clear way back uh yeah but, like but- that the the federation police are introduced like three pages earlier. <laughs> yes. Um but yeah, so he he sets the stage uh, for Zot is so Jenny Jenny had been planning to move to Zot's earth, something that is talked right. about throughout, you know, many of those issues and this party was supposed to in some ways be like her coming out party uh, to say like I'm here to stay now. Um, but the issue ends with her, Woody, and Zot uh, all back on Earth uh, and stranded there for for the foreseeable future. Right. Which, you know, and then, so yeah, the the fact that there's only eight issues left, I assume, don't tell me, but I I kind of assume that the series ends not necessarily because, like, Scott McCloud is like, I've done everything I want to, but just because, like, he can't do it anymore <laughs> yeah i i think it's it's kind of uh a bit of both uh like the the story the next section of issues he typically refers to as earth stories they are mostly on earth i think he could have kept writing those but he was sort of like this isn't really like a zot book anymore It's it's yeah. like what well, yeah when people talk about the tone changing for the black and white issues like you you can see all the seeds for it in these ones that we're, we're talking about right now. Um, but the last eight issues are the ones where he really is like, and now it's like a slice of life book and like Zot, right. <laughs> Zot is also around sometimes. Mm-hmm. Um, so so I think that he could have kept doing those stories and, and had fun with them for a long time, but was sort of like, this isn't really a Zot book anymore. I think at that, point he is also like really interested in in understanding comics and like kind of working on it in earnest and he's sort of like i can't i i want to do this book um and i can't be working on like a monthly title it's it's hard it's hard enough as it is for him to just do this book right and be working on my like my magnum opus at the same time so i need to just stop and you know the like the, the book was never like an insane moneymaker. Um, so I think it makes sense at that point where he's interested to take his career in a different direction and, and focus on a new project that he, he would wrap it up. Um, the last issue is awesome. <laughs> I think I think the last issue is kind of like a thesis statement for the book as a whole is really successful. Um, but we will talk about that next time yeah i i can't imagine the ending not being good <laughs> like he seems to really na- like whenever there's like a sort of like big moment or like a powerful emotional moment i feel like he pretty universally like pulls those off extremely well yeah, he uh he certainly yeah comes comes through in the clutch on those ones um yeah these it's well we will we can talk about it in a bit but um How do you how do you find that these issues compare with the first 10, given that, you know, I think I had I had built it up for you a bit. And I'm sure you have seen elsewhere as well that like you you sort of said a lot of the impression is like there's yeah, there's the color issues. They're good. And then he comes back with a black and white book. And then it's like really good. Yeah, like there is I think I like I like the best issues um, as much as I like the best issues of the color stuff. Um, I I still think that I consider them to be roughly on the same level. Like, I mean, like, if you think about the first Deco arc or the last, like, three or four issues of the color stuff, like, that I think is just as good as, you know, well, I'd say, like, I'd say probably Season of Dreams and Eyes of Deco are my favorite ones uh, from this arc. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, like, I like things like Getting to 99 where it's more, you know, it's less focused on that kind of thing, but I think that, I think it's good. Mm -hmm. Uh, Definitely, I think the fact that there's more of it makes it so that there can be, like, and that it's less focused on that one story in the same way the first 10 issues were, Mm -hmm. uh, makes it a lot easier to sort of say, like, there are individual moments or issues that are better or worse than others, Uh, whereas with Zot, like, I never really thought about saw the first 10 as individual issues i just thought of them as one right self-contained story that was broken up that yeah, way it definitely is is more um episodic yeah definitely yeah this, this stuff is definitely a lot more episodic whereas the first 10 feels kind of like the the key saga um right where they they have that kind of unifying element even though it is kind of like 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 we talked about last time, it is less focused in some ways, but because it has the kind of structure of the overarching story, there. You're right. I think you're right. At least that there's times that it feels more focused in some ways. Uh, in from a storytelling perspective, in a way that, you know, it it kind of becomes uh, more more serialized here, and and loses a bit of that um, tightness. Is the wrong word because he's now he's now telling stories in like two or three issues versus 10 yeah i think it's more about like the the scope of the story that he's telling like yeah. the like it's 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 more like the Decca which is great but it's you know it, it's its own thing versus the key saga which is like its own it's 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 a whole giant story being told right. yeah i think i think that where he sort of runs into some trouble in these issues is that By and large, I would say that these are much like lower stakes stories. But every so often, he goes like like season of dreams. The stakes are literally the life of every person. (laughs) Right. Where like sometimes he'll still he'll still go kind of like big like that and be like here's a here's like kind of a, a high stakes story. Which even though that unfolds in a very like sort of personal way he's now he's now setting the very high stakes for a story that only has three issues to unfold. And because like we've discussed, he's not really interested in focusing on on how Zot will defeat Zybox as much as he is like, let's let's spend an issue with Jenny in her dream. Right. Um, it It's it, the pacing of the, of the larger story feels a bit rushed for some of them. I think uh, Ghost in the Machine also suffers from that where you know, that that could easily have been 10 issues in the same way that the key saga was. And instead, right. it's condensed into three. And I think, you can correct me if I'm wrong here, but I think what you, what's sort of like coming to your mind in terms of it feeling like you're using the word tight, I think what it's about is like, he's really good at hitting like like i said he's really good at hitting those big emotional moments or like big climactic moments or anticlimactic moments mm-hmm. um but compared to the key saga a lot of times the sort of in between plot machinations either are aren't fully fleshed out or feel kind of perfunctory yeah um whereas like it's like he's he has the idea he has the concept and he has the conclusion and then it's sort of like he has to sort of go through the motions to get between those two points, when he would rather just be filling that with you know, like more characterized stuff, yeah, and I think I think that he doesn't totally solve that problem in these issues, and the difference now is just that like some of the stories have to resolve even faster because he's still like yeah exactly he's yeah he's still like I'm gonna focus on like the character beats, um, but now like I don't have the the promised to uh, or the, not the promise. I don't have the opportunity of like, I can, I can sort this out in the next issue or a couple issues from now. It's exactly. like, this is the last issue. I, I already know what I'm doing next. So <laughs> I need to just like wrap up this, this stuff so I can get onto that. But yeah, I, I think that throughout these first 27 issues, the character stuff has always been the strongest part of the book. The, the more character focused moments, um, the lower stakes stuff, the the more interpersonal and relational stuff, has always been where he really excels. I think there's a lot more of that in these issues, and f- and for that reason, I do tend to prefer them. Um, but yeah, the the last, I guess it's like nine or almost ten issues that we get uh, get at the end, where mm-hmm. he basically has done away with supervillains completely, and and it's a <laughs> slice of life book, um, really played to his strengths and uh, and are far and away the the real like high point of the series and when i think or, or i think that when people think about what makes sot like really really magical and really special as a comic it's those last issues um that that they, they it builds mm-hmm. on what he's done already to this point but it really is like a sea change for the the focus of the book yeah. even even more so than the uh number 11 was so yeah. I'm looking forward to uh, to getting you into those. Yes, which we shall be tackling in the next episode. Um, we 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 should think of a like a closing segment. Like uh... do you want to you want to talk for ten minutes about <laughs> comic size uh, <laughs> I but we'll... uh, I do or I do recall uh, looking up the oh the sales Uh... Yeah I, can, yeah, I can pull up the sales numbers and we can briefly look at those. I do have to go in 15 minutes uh, and we are at two hours 20. <laughs> <Not> <laughs> right now, it's true, we don't need a closing uh, segment. Crazy. When, uh, well, we'll figure out the closing segment. Um, And don't worry, much of this will be cut out. So people will be like, I'm only 40 minutes in. <laughs> 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 this isn't two hours 20. Uh, uh, but I, yes. I will say the uh, winner of best single issue for uh the year that um season of dreams number number like 14 or whatever it was was nominated uh was gumby summer fun special number one oh. From, oh, we should, from that's comic a bonus Go. episode uh, that was nom wait wait that, that was, was the best selling that, that was nominated for best comic winner of best single issue slash single oh, story should read that uh, have i been telling you how i've been how gumby has been getting into my life lately <laughs> you have not um there's a twitter account that just posts random screenshots of gumby <laughs> and they're so good i'll send some to you after this uh yes um, legendary x-men artist uh, art adams doing the art for the gumby summer fun number one special oh
1: that rules um, yeah
0: well i'm i'm committing i'm committed to doing a bonus episode on <laughs> gum gumby summer fun is it gumby with sunglasses on the cover uh that is a good good question let me pull it up here real quick okay you do that and i will i'll read this quote that i wanted to read and you can just tell me what the cover to gumby summer fun is and then that will be the end of the episode all right okay (laughs) so the (laughs) the quote that i wanted to read um this guy george green he sends in a letter uh it's it's published in issue 27 uh, so in a, in a way that's it sort of feels like the climax of the letters page as well. <laughs> um, but yes, it's sort of it's it's this George Greenfellow um, basically he's sort of taking Scott to task, um, saying, you know, you talk about race in the comic, like you have Vic as a race as a black character, but you also don't really tackle like his blackness as a concept. Uh, something else I wanted to mention was like he talks about the possibility of Drufus being gay, um, in another letters page mm-hmm. where he sort of talks about the idea that like this is someone who has been told all his life by his family that he is something that he de- that he isn't. Um and sort of this is something that a reader has suggested that he sort of likes. Um and so George Green talks about that as well. He's sort of like he's basically saying like you sort of pay lip service to these ideas, but you don't really like tackle them head on in your book. Um And you don't really like provide any answers to the things you raise. Uh And, and Scott McCloud has, has a good defense of his ideas. He sort of talks about how, you know, that it's not always about providing answers to things. Like mm. he says, he has like, I think it's a quote, but he, he says that, uh uh, a piece of media that like provides all the answers is just propaganda. Um, but then in, in response to the talk of, you know, him tackling race, uh, which again came up earlier when talking about the characters in New York and things like that. Uh, I liked this quote from him. Comics do not need more pampered straight upper middle-class white boys like me lecturing America about the problems of blacks, gays, women, Hispanics, or the handicapped. Comics do need black writers, gay writers, women writers, Hispanic writers, handicapped writers, and yes, pampered straight upper middle classic white boy writers to simply tell it like it is. That's good art and good politics. And fortunately, uh, 35 years later, we've uh, fixed that and it's no longer a problem with the industry. No, that all, all writers are. (laughs) We have true diversity in uh, writers and artists and certainly in editorial and executive positions and uh, there's... (laughs) Problem solved. We are racism. Racism. Okay. Racism. Alright, the cover of Gumby Summer Fun special number one <laughs> is uh a wraparound cover or uh I, I don't think it's technically a gatefold cover, but anyways, it is it is a front and back wraparound cover. The front cover depicts Gumby and his uh trusty horse sidekick Pokey. Uh, of both with looks of horror on their faces running away as a ufo closes in on them <laughs> firing lasers from a spinning yeah. gatling gun <laughs> and other other ufos close in on the back cover we see that they Is are he at least sunglasses he's not wearing sunglasses no. on the back cover we see that they are also being pursued by robots skeletons <laughs> Pirates, a werewolf, <laughs> bears in astronaut suits, <laughs> a mummy, uh, some sort of like ninja type creatures, and a swarm of bats. <laughs> uh oh, and also it's like the ninja babies and boss baby gumby, too. gumby and pokey are are drawn in like the pretty classic gumby style all mm-hmm. the things chasing them are done in like a pretty standard <laughs> art adams style that is like proto 90s very detailed like very like lots of cross hatching <laughs> uh it's a great cover i uh, <laughs> highly recommend giving giving gumby summer fun special number one uh I'll look for the the cover front and back. Oh, there's also Gumby's Winter Fun Special. Huh. Okay. So he appears look out to be uh, in our health. reviews of that. <laughs> <laughs> that is a, not a joke. <laughs> okay. So we will after we finish Scott McCloud and we have our episode where we interview Scott McCloud. Um, <laughs> we will have a bonus episode before our next mini series where we review Gumby Summer and Winter Fun Specials uh okay that is going to do it for this episode it is very long i hope someone listened to it <laughs> congratulations it. to you if you did yes you made it um please rate review and subscribe <laughs> again no episodes have been released so uh hopefully they have by this point point. and just have a good time out there uh oh have our next episode out there we'll be covering zot number 28 to 36. Number 36. So look out for that. And until then, have a good day. <laughs> I,
1: <laughs> I, was trying to think, <laughs>
0: I was trying I was trying to think of the Borat joke I made oh, in the last two episodes, <laughs> but I couldn't I couldn't even remember what it was supposed to be. Wawa, we'll see you later. <laughs> oh <laughs> uh, the episode is over. Oh, yeah, I'm stopping my record. I'm Stopping my record. <laughs>